I was, I was killing it. I was making millions of dollars. The average lick, I would say 50 grand at least in jewelry or more per day. And I didn't go out every day. Sometimes I'd only go out once a month. I run to the bedroom, I clear out his jewelry box, I grab a bag that's sitting up by the side, put it over my shoulder, I jump back on the bike, I'm gone. I'm in Nick Navarro's house probably two minutes, if that. Because I also didn't know if that relay set off the alarm and maybe, you know, should have picked the phone up again to see. I get to the house, spread it out on the bed, run of the mill jewelry, nothing's exceptional. Uh, there's some cufflinks from the DEA. It used to be a DEA agent. There's a letter with a presidential seal, a little card. It had the presidential seal of the United States. I opened it up. It said, Dear Sheriff Nick Navarro, thank you for your assistance on the South Florida Drug Task Force. Sincerely, President Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I said, holy crap, this guy's got a letter from the president. This guy was talking about how he's about to be released, and he fell asleep, and he had his release paperwork in his pocket. So I figured, I'll escape from the jail now, right? So- I'm going to take this homeless guy's paperwork and try to walk out what they call his name, you know, and look at the paper. I get the paperwork. Nobody says a word about it. I look in their cars. They have clipboards and, like, my picture's on their board. And I'm like, holy crap, that's my DOC picture with blue background and everything. They surround the wrong building. The helicopter drops down. They start deploying. They bring out the, the dogs and everything. And I'm like, okay, they're around the wrong building. Good, good for me. And I snuck back around and I went up the stairs and I let myself in to grab that bag. And as soon as I did. Hey, this is Matt Cox and I'm here with William Steele. And he was uh, recently released from prison. He was on the A&E TV show, Inmate to Roommate. Uh, he's got an interesting uh, true crime story and we're going to get into it. So what, how long have you been out? Just over a year and a half. And A&E, Inmate to Roommate, one of the highest rated reality shows in the country. It was advertised during Shawshank Redemption. I would see my picture every time they went to a commercial, they would say, you know, coming soon, you know, Inmate to Roommate, you know, the A&E special. And uh, it blew up. It blew up on the ratings. The only reality show higher than mine was Jersey Shore Vacation. Right. While it was airing. And, uh, you know, 11 million, 11 point something million views on TikTok and uh I don't even know how to measure all the other metrics, but I do know I looked at the, the ratings, and if you eliminated sports coverage and hurricane coverage in Florida at the time it was airing, it was the number two reality show in the country, and it was like the fifth or sixth most popular show in the country. Okay, well let's let's well, let's start. Let's go back to the beginning. Like, I mean, you know, obviously you went to prison. What? Where were you born? Like, how how did this whole thing? How did this get started? I mean, your mom met your dad. Obviously, we know what happened there. And you then you were born. And you have a uh, you were and you uh, do you have brothers sisters? Where were you born? So you know, my name is Bill, and uh, you know, I served X amount of time in prison. Uh, you know, probably close to twenty years. But how it began was, you know, I, I I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and middle class family, two sisters, two older sisters, mother, father. Father was a hardworking guy, nine to five type guy, great guy. My mom was mentally ill. So I, I'm part Sicilian and I'm part English. So I have a unique way of expressing myself. You know, I have the, the Brooklyn and the New York sarcasm and the humor. And I have the Sicilian ways where I can get a little loud at times when I'm trying to express myself. But um, so because of my mother's Ill, mental illness all my life, I've, I've uh, you know, even when I was a little child, visited her mental uh, hospital, psychiatric hospitals. She was committed sometimes for years at a time. And it was very heartbreaking growing up in that situation. I was very protective of my mother. You know, you would have, uh, I got along great with everybody in the neighborhood, but, you know, my mother was was picked on and, 
Um, mostly the neighbors loved her. They knew my grandfather, Santo, uh, from Sicily. And uh, we lived not far from where uh, Carlo, uh, Carlo Gambino had a house. So I knew him when I was a little kid. He used to pat me on the head when I was going off to Catholic school. You know, hey, Billy, and good boy, you know, stay out of trouble when you grow up. You know, Carlo Gambino talking to me. You know, I didn't know who he was at the time. But uh, so having to defend my mother from bullies and stuff in the neighborhood, it was it wouldn't be horrible things. It's horrible enough. People throwing snowballs at her, teasing her, taunting her. She had a police whistle and she'd roam the neighborhood, blowing it at the neighbors and telling the, the women in the neighborhood to stop looking at her husband. And we had a beautiful golden Labrador retriever and, and he would just go barking at everybody, and escort her no matter where she went. And she was a fixture in the neighborhood. Well, I spent, you know, my whole life and today, you know, even being a, a victim advocate, I... I've always been in defense of women, children, and the mentally ill, especially the mentally, mentally ill. I don't appreciate people that try to bully other people around. And so that being said, it's kind of why I do what I do today. But staying back on that track when I was young, my mother was obsessed with Jimmy Carter and with uh, Prince Philip. And so she would invite them when I was a little kid, 10, 12, 13 years old. She would invite them to my birthday parties in the house in Brooklyn. And, you know, Jimmy, I love you. Da, da, da. It's my son William's birthday party. And we would get these nice letters back. Sorry, but President Carter has something to do that day. You know, you know, thank you for the invitation on, on White House stationery. You know, it was pretty right. F. And there's some from Buckingham Palace, you know, when she would write Prince Philip inviting him to my birthday party. So my mother was mentally ill. But in a good way. But everybody loved my mother. She was wonderful. Anyway, so one day, you know. I'm sorry, when you say you mean like she had schizophrenia? Schizophrenia, some other conditions. It was brought on by a drug, allegedly, I guess I don't want to get sued, a drug called Dexedrine, which was a, a weight reduction drug that she took after my birth in the, in the uh, early 60s. Okay. And that, that that people abused and it, it fried her mind. And so she was in and out of psych psychiatric hospitals as a result of that. <clears throat> so one time I get home from school, I have the Secret Service and the police at my house. And, you know, I'm 13 years old, you know, and have the, all these police there. And they take me downtown, which was in, in Manhattan. They drove me into Manhattan. My father had an office in the World Trade Center. Their office, the Secret Service office, was also in the, one of the towers. I forget which one, the original World Trade Center. I go in there. They have a picture in an envelope. They pull it out. It's a blow-up of me pointing a, a BB gun at the camera. They say, you know anything about this picture? Because they wouldn't tell me why they were taking me in. In those years, I didn't, they didn't tell you anything. Plus, I was a minor. And I said, yes, that was a Polaroid. And lest I, lest I ever laid eyes on it, it was in the top drawer of my, uh, of my dresser in the house. They said, well, why would your mother be sending this to President Carter, pointing a gun at the camera? And, you know, and then our other pictures and paperwork she had written. Until we see you next time again, Jimmy, you know, this is my son, William. A hundred pounds of Doritos and water. Love Eleanor. <laughs> so, <laughs> I said, "Well, my mother loves Jimmy Carter. She's always invited to my birthday party. She doesn't. She doesn't pose a threat. And that's a broken BB gun. Me and my friend were playing around in the backyard. You know, taking pictures of each other. I didn't even know she took the picture. She probably didn't even notice the picture. Right. Anyway, so they had to call her psychiatrist and my father and find out where she was. She was roaming the neighborhood with her whistle blowing it at the neighbors. You know. So they found her." And the whole time she's arguing with them, you know, what is your function here? What is your function here? She's screaming at the Secret Service guys. Anyway, that, that all blew over since so this is my childhood. So later in life, 
you know, I was going to college. I went to a community college, and then I got involved with real estate. Working for Century Twenty One Real Estate, I became a very, very good salesman in marketing. No matter what I touched, I always succeeded. And I was always a very tenacious salesperson. I always treated people in sales how I wanted to be treated. And I right, right off the rip, as soon as I got into real estate, I was selling crazy amount of houses. I was getting crazy amount of listings, and the broker was very happy with me. Around this uh, same period, I started taking locksmithing classes. I saw things advertised for New York School of Locksmithing Safes and Alarms. Um, on a what classes? Locksmithing safes and alarms. It was the New York School of Locksmithing. It was on 42nd Street. So I started attending there because I figured, well, I want to use, get some skills and do things for the greater good. I was thinking like, I'll go to the CIA. I'll become an FBI agent, you know, back in those years. You know, when I was a young teen, I was even in one of the original people in the Guardian Angels. I knew Curtis Sliwa really well. And so I was active and was really trying to do the right thing. I hated bullies. I hate people that would pick on the weak. I just could, I despised it. But anyway, what happened was uh, I attended the school. I did very, very well. Graduated top of my class, able to open safes, vaults, install alarms, install things, change combinations, pick locks, like very proficiently. And I started a security company. And so in the middle of all this, you know, I'm getting in and out of real estate. Um, a friend of mine. Very I feel like this is going to go bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get those kind of skills and grow up the way I did and then go off the rails for quite a few years. Uh, yeah. So what happened was my best friend at the time he, uh, was from a very affluent Jewish family. And he was working in the garment industry. And then I got him started in real estate. His name's Sammy. God bless Sammy. But anyway... He wanted to go to a nightclub. I was never into drinking, getting high, or anything like that. You know, he was going to a nightclub. He said, hey, he had so many car racks, and he said, would you drive me? And I turned him down. You know, I was working in the real estate office. I was training a young lady, and I wanted to spend time with her after work. So I broke my plans with him at the last moment, and something told me he walked out of the real estate office. I was there working late, like 10 o'clock at night in Brooklyn. And when he drove away and made his left turn, I just got goosebumps. Like, wow, I'm never going to see this guy again. It was such a weird, like a spiritual thing. It was so, so weird. And I just felt really shaken up all of a sudden. I was like, anyway, I, the next morning I'm back in the office and I get a call at my desk from his grandfather. His grandfather says, Billy, you know, can you please tell me where um, uh, where Sammy's new apartment is? I said, I, I need to send the maid over there to clean up a few things. I said, he's doing great. I was just over there yesterday morning. He's, he's on top of it. You know, it doesn't really need any work, but here's, here's the dress. And he started crying. And he said, you know what that F did last night? I said, no, he lied. No, what the hell? What's going on? He said he got himself killed in a car accident. And uh, it's it's not easy talking about it because I was very guilt-stricken because I was supposed to be his driver that night, you know? And I knew he was a notoriously bad driver, so... To this day, it really tears me up. I have trouble dealing with it still. But so there was a lot of guilt. You know, I tried was, to go- he, was he drinking? Was it, did he get drunk? Was it a, just, you don't know? No, he, he drank, I think, lightly, but he didn't get high or anything. He was just a notoriously poor driver. Uh, coming back from the club, evidently, he was speeding. Uh, I guess it was the Bell Parkway near Kennedy Airport. And probably he gets irritated at people in traffic. Maybe he was speeding. He spun out and hit overpass backwards, and something went through the center of his head and killed him. I don't know how that could even happen, but uh, the police that patrol the area 
Um, they came across his body behind the wheel of the car. There was no witnesses. Nobody came forward to see, to see what happened. But that's how he was found with his car wrapped around, you know, an overpass. But so I went to see the car, which that was further traumatizing, you know, at the tow truck place because it was his blood all over with his body outlined on the seat. So seeing your best friend's body outline, you know, his blood, you know, and when I'm feeling like I, sh- I was supposed to have driven him, and I'm a very good driver, you know, was, we we did a lot of a lot of things with driving, including stealing cars, chop shops, and all that stuff later on. But uh, so what happened was I looked up some friends of mine, and who knew him as well. I took the rest of the day off. I couldn't even go to the funeral because he was Jewish, and they had already buried him. By the time I got the call, he was already in the ground. So now I can't even pay my respects to my friend. I go to his house, his family's sitting shiva, which is a Jewish tradition where the family comes together, you know, in the house. And I paid my respects and I, and I, and I went and looked up some friends and these friends were already not doing much with their lives. Like high school buddies, they were not doing much and they were using Coke. They were snorting it, smoking it. And I was real depressed and feeling responsible for Sammy's death. And they offered me some cocaine and hey, it will help you, man, to get you out of that. This is the eighties now. Everybody's doing coke. There's no real stigma in this particular moment in time. Right. We're talking, you know. Um, so I I tried it, and I got pretty quickly hooked on it. And so my life began spiraling a bit. So what I did is I start, started getting advances from the broker on deals that were just on the board, but they hadn't closed yet. I started saying, hey, I've got 10 deals on the board, and, you know, most of them are going to go through. You know, I, I like it. I started getting advances on commission. started, you know, just uh, taking advantage. And at one point, you know, my family became aware of this. My girlfriend at the time became aware. They had me have a, I guess what you call it today is a, uh, like not a mediation, uh, intervention. Intervention. They all sat me down in the lawyer's office saying, look, you know, you're losing a lot of weight. <laughs> you're not coming into work. You're disappearing for days into hotel rooms. And uh, so I was really getting on coke pretty bad. Well, when things got tight, I was like, well, I always have these skills to rely on. And I started using my skills as a locksmith and an alarm technician. And, and I started committing burglaries all across New York City. Then uh, I got in trouble for a crime. We had a high-speed chase with the police. I went on the run. When I well, went on, well, you were, I mean, you committing burglary. What was the first burglary you, you did? How did you know to commit the burglary? Um, well, let me see. There were so many of them that I couldn't even give you a first burglary. There was just so many of them. Um, there was just one stands out, you know, let's say a restaurant in Manhattan in, in, in downtown. I was working for a place called Atlas Locksmith. I think they might still be around. And plus I had my side business. And a lot of these places I had, I was, I had installed alarms or locks in. So I kind of knew their layouts and all that. And I went back and even during my early addiction, I was still doing installations and locksmithing. So at that point, I will start taking index cards. And if I install something in an office building or a luxury home or something, I would either save an extra copy of the key, take to the index card, or the key code so I can just get a key cut anytime I wanted. And I can go back six months later, three months later. I'm the guy that installed it. You know, I violate their trust in like the worst possible way. I regret it. I'm not bragging about my past. But I would go back and I would use all that. I even did the Master King in the World Trade Center for it was two or three floors of, of Dean Witter Reynolds. It was a big stockage uh, broke for, brokerage firm back in the day. I don't even know if it's still around. But anyway, I'm the guy who did that. I had the key from the CEO president that worked everything in the building, you know, his office to everything. So I would have so much access around downtown. So that, that one burglary of, of the restaurant actually stands out. Using forgeries and bogus identities, 
Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. I got connected with a guy back then who found out about my skills, a guy named Buttons. Buttons had killed several people. And I'm not going to give his real name on here, but he was a pretty notorious figure in, in Brooklyn lore. And he, I, I mean, Buttons? I mean, right. that doesn't sound good. Like, that's a, that's a mob name if I've ever heard one. Now, he, he wasn't made. He was a mixed uh, nationality, but he was a he was looked more like an Irishman. He looked, looked more like a Westie, if you know what I mean. Like, right. The Westies from back in the day. So Buttons was a really bad and dangerous guy, and a lot of people, you know, avoided him because a lot of his partners, when they made him, when he made money with them, they turn up dead. So his mother took a liking to me, and she would always warn me. Uh, she said, "Billy, please stay away from my son. You have skills that he needs, and when you put a lot of money in front of him, he's coming out on top, and you're going to be laying there dead." And this was his mother warning me to stay away from this guy. Right. And I, of course, I didn't listen. We did a few things together. And uh, so Buttons was quite the character. Um, he, uh, he he killed somebody that was that had the, the photograph taken with, like, President Carter's wife. I mean, he's he pretty notorious. He was in prison before for shooting a policewoman through a, through a door. They were raiding where he was dealing drugs, shot through the door, hit her in her vest, and he got prison time for that. And while I'm hanging with him, he's on parole. He's got a handcuff key on him all the time. Well, what what kind of what kind of money are you making when you break into a, a, a safe? Um, when you go into it, first of all, like, aren't you nervous? Are you going in the middle of the night? Like, are you nervous? Well, when I'm doing the nighttime ones, which is very very uncommon, you know, there's of course there's a little apprehension, but I I, I map things out so well. Everything I did was very very well planned. I knew precisely what the, the hours were or if it was a home, when the people would be there, when they wouldn't be there. I usually, especially when it came to homes, I started posing as Donna Karen's brother and going to see, for example, in South Florida, I would go see multi-million dollar homes on the intercoastal posing as a potential buyer who was Donna Karen's brother. She's at a fashion show, and I would have inexperienced realtors generally show me these houses, and then I would come back with a camera. I'd film the houses. I would know where the alarm panels were. I'd make them open all the doors in the house. I'd say, look, if my sister buys it, we're going to do a gut renovation. So when they're opening all the closets and from there on a second visit, I'm now filming everything. Back then you had the smaller cameras, not, not the phones, but um, sometimes even <laughs> the bigger cameras, you know, that was in those days. But so I'd have video, I'd have full color brochures that the realtor would pass out. I was a realtor. I knew how to convince a salesperson I was serious, you know, right. 
things. So I, you know, I, I would have, I would see all these gorgeous homes and map them out. I would know what to look for, whether it's in a Demco remote system panel or, you know, Magnum Alert or Central Motion Detectors or Colorado Optics, Optics Infrareds, all these different brands. Medical locks, which I personally prefer. All medical locks are probably the best thing you could have. But uh, so I would know if it's a quick set, Schlage, this, that, how many pin. I would know their schedules. The realtors usually will tell the people to stay out of the way or be out of the house when they're showing the house. Right. So I don't have to worry about them because they're usually going to be a friend of that owner. So that person has inadvertently told them so many things that they don't even realize that they're then going to confide to a potential buyer who they want to sell because they're going to make a big commission. So just through small talk, those realtors would not know what they're doing and they're revealing schedules. They're revealing, well, they're going to be out of town for a month here going to their house up in Michigan or wherever, you know, the lake house. And you know this people's whole schedule. You would know what day of the week the, you know, the maid came over, the pool guy. I would right. get all that out of them. <laughs> and so I, I was very, very well planned. I knew when the place was going to be empty. I knew what alarm I was dealing with. And normally, I'd say 80% of the time, the wealthier, more affluent community, South Florida, Boca, Fort Lauderdale, um, I was killing Boca. I was killing Palm Beach. I would be able to get in and out having so much information. I really wasn't worried about it. And I was always very clean cut. I wear a lot of jewelry generally, especially in the 80s, but I would always scale it down when I was doing a crime. I'd, throw, I'd slap a wedding band on. I'd put on maybe a black, you know, band watch, you know, maybe a simple PSA or something. She'd fit in the neighborhood. I was always getting my nails done. So people would say, it's no wonder you got away with so much. You look like a Jewish dentist walking, you know, walking right. to somebody's house. I didn't, you know, I'm not covered in tattoos. So I, I was always well-dressed and, and always in a very late model luxury car, sometimes my own, sometimes stolen with a, you know, tag of some kind on it. But uh, I got away with it for a very long time. The problem was I was using a lot of coke. Right. And, you know. Can I uh, question? Can I ask a question? What's like an, is there an average? Well, first of all, I guess, is there an average lick? Like, is there a, an average take or what, you know, what, what types of, what are you getting out of these houses? Like, well, at the most successful was had to be South Florida, East Coast. I was, I was killing it. I was making millions of dollars. The average lick. I would say 50 grand at least in jewelry or more per day. And I didn't go out every day. Sometimes I'd only go out once a month. And I had hours when I would go do it. Even though I had all this information, I still would not go cruising through a neighborhood or up to that house unless it was from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The husband's already gone from work if, it's, if they're working people. The wife's generally has gone shopping by them, supermarket or mall. And the kids are still at school till about 2 o'clock. Right. I don't want to run into anybody. So I'm picking a key part of the day. That's when I'm going in. Even if I have all that background information, which 99% of the time I do. And you're not armed or anything. You're, you don't want any problems. You're... No. There was a time early on when I, when I would be because we were making silences and we were running guns from South Florida to New York along with cocaine. I was working with some people from, from uh, one of the original cocaine cowboys back in the day. And, um, uh, I was getting cocaine from, from him and some of his friends and we would have a trunk full of cocaine, you know, 20 kilos or whatever, send them up to New York. At that time, I think it was $14,000 a key. We were selling it for like maybe 24, 22 in New York plus guns. Plus we were, we had a shop where we were making silencers, building them on, selling them up in New York. I used to keep a pistol with a silencer on it just in case, but then I realized I'm not trying to hurt anybody. <laughs> you know? Right. 
just try to make money. And it, 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 like again, for your audience, I'm not bragging on my past, but it was exciting at the time. And you're getting all this stuff for free. You know how it is. You're doing your little thing, whatever scam you had going on. And there's an excitement in that, you know. Right. But when you look back, you're like, what the hell were they thinking? Look at my life, you know. I wasted all these years in prison. You know, you can never get them back. But um, I, I would, I, I hit. Listen, I hit Sheriff Nick Navarro's house. Navarro was the sheriff of Broward County. He's the one who started the cops TV show. With okay, they Broward was bad boys, bad boys, right? Oh yeah, yeah, right. He so, like seemed a little. He almost seemed like he was a little bit right. He was kind of a pretty boy, kind of a white, a white shock of hair. You, yeah, he's white hair. He, they he only cute. did it for like a season or two, right? He was like the main guy. For a season or two, and then they, he kind of disappeared. Cops program started filming in South Florida in the, in the mid '80s, and Sheriff Navarro allowed them to film at his department, and he was in several of the episodes. And anyway, so he's passed away now. But one of the things I did, inadvertently, this was something where I just went out for a drive one day, gorgeous day, coming up on a holiday. I knew a lot of people would be out, and off the intercoastal. I saw a house that had all the signs and nobody home, a plate lot, beautiful home, newspapers in front of the, in front of the garage door, uh, hadn't been picked up, looked like two or three days worth just sitting there. So I went, I actually was on a bicycle that day and I just was able to get in. The alarm wasn't on. I went through a window, drop in. There's a gun sitting on a, on a, on a nightstand with a bunch of dust on it. A detective five shot Colt special. I took that, put it in my pocket just in case somebody was home. I grabbed the phone and in those days, the phones needed to use the the uh, alarms needed to use the phone lines, so I could pick that phone up as soon as I got in the house. And if that line was dead, I didn't hear a dial tone. That meant I screwed up somehow, and the alarm was going out. Now, pretty sure everything's wireless. Right. I, either way, so the first thing I do is grab a phone when I get in the house. Uh, and before I would go where I have lock picks, I have a police scanner, I have liquid glove on. It's a product that seals your hands clear, and it's good for like four hours. You won't leave a fingerprint anywhere. A lot of mechanics use it. So, and I'm not trying to teach anybody how to do a burglary. I apologize for giving away. Wow. But so I had I had everything figured out. I you know so, you know so you think, of course. But um, so in, in his case, I get in, I get the gun, and I'm walking towards the master bedroom. Immediately, that's the beeline. And as I cross the foyer, I hear click like like somebody drew down on me. I turn around. I was like, oh shit! I'm about to put my hands in the air because I don't really want to have a shootout with anybody. Right. So his gun in my pocket. And I, it was an old school uh, um, photoelectric eye. Like you, the stores used to have them. You walk in, it would, you know, it would announce you there. People had them for alarms back in the day. So it picked me up and, it, and the relay clicking, you know, in a, in a quiet house on the intercoastal got my attention. Right. Oh, man, I caught my breath. I run to the bedroom. I clear out his jewelry box. I grab a bag that's sitting up by the side, put it over my shoulder. I jump back on the bike. I'm gone. I'm in Nick Navarro's house probably. Two minutes, if that, right? Gone. That's how quick I'm in and out of there. Because I also didn't know if that relay set off the alarm and maybe, you know, I should have picked the phone up again to see. But so I just decided to grab what I can get out. I get to the house, spread it out on the bed. Run-of-the-mill jewelry, nothing's exceptional. Uh, there's some cufflinks from the DEA. It used to be a DEA agent. There's a letter with a presidential seal, a little card. It had the presidential seal, United States. I opened it up. I said, Dear Sheriff Nick Navarro, thank you for your assistance on the South Florida Drug Task Force. Sincerely, President Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I said, holy crap, this guy's got a letter from the president. Then it dawned on me. Nick Navarro 
I had his wallet. I opened it up. His ID with his picture. I said, holy crap, that's the guy from the cops TV program. Sheriff Nick Navarro. He's not just a cop. He's the elected sheriff of this county, which is Fort Lauderdale and, and all over the place. I'm like, oh, my God. They're going to be hunting for me now. I need to get out of Florida for a while. Yeah, I just looked him up. He, this is not the same guy that I thought he was. But he was yeah, about the guy who fell off a cliff, American Crime and Justice. He was doing a thing and he backed off a cliff. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> I know the guy you're talking about. I said it was a different show. Mm. Yeah, he yeah, actually yeah. fell during a, during a shoot in California. Jeez. Yeah, okay. Well, no wonder he didn't keep doing the cops episode. Um, yeah, that's the that's your. It's funny because he wrote a book called uh, the, the, Cu the Cuban Cop, which that might have been the one he's looking that at. That was it right there, yeah. He was represented and helped write it by Tom Madden, the former vice president of NBC. Tom happens to be one of my best friends. Yeah. Tom, yep, that's him. That's Nick. Hello, Sheriff Navarro. God bless you. I'm sorry I stole your stuff. Um, look, so he's represented at that time with that book. You'll see Transmedia Group all throughout that book. I talk to Tom every day right now. Tom's one of my best friends. And when I, when I finally confided to him, like, you know, like just two years ago, this is like, you know, 20, 30 years later, I said, you remember when his house got hit? He goes, yeah, that was huge. And he goes, oh, don't tell me that was you. I said, yep. <laughs> like, he said, man, he was a really good friend. He's passed away now. We did his book. And this is when I was in prison. He sent me a copy of that book. He said, would you like a copy of Nick's book? I said, sure. Well, I had that around here somewhere on the show. But um, yeah, so in that bag, was some other stuff that I'm not going to publicly say because, of course, it can never be proven. But, you know, there was a lot of that. Now, this is in the man's personal house, right? Right. There was allegations at the time that he was extremely corrupt. And I think when he left the office, they found like six or eight kilos of unaccounted for cocaine in his office safe, like not connected to any case. So who knows what he was siphoning off. And then right, yeah. Rumors like, you know, let's knock off the Colombians and give the coke to put on the street to his Cuban buddies, I, I, this is all alleged, so we better be careful with that because his family's still around. But uh, yeah, so I can tell you point blank that that's was actually in the house as well. So, but uh, it's just a, it's a small world. So circle back, and Tom is actually the one who's uh, introduced me to my fiance now, Mary, Doctor Mary Bass. Um, okay. So those are the years I was really ripping and running in South Florida, and in those years, I think gold was, was about three sixty something an ounce. Now, what is it, like 1700 <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like ridiculous. I probably would have $10 million hidden somewhere if I was doing that, doing that today. But, uh, you know, you look back, it's like, is it really worth all the years I lost in prison? No, not at all. Right. So so do you did so you turn around, did you have like a, a main fence or did you just break the jewelry down and sell it? I mean. Well, in New York, I had many fences. Some were on 47th Street, which is the Diamond District. There was been movies made about it. And yeah. so much uh, legitimate business people there, but there's also a hell of a lot of corruption. You bring in things, you know, whatever you want, you just walk out with a pocket full of cash. You sell whatever you have. Um, South Florida in Miami, they have what they call the Seabold building. That building there is all like the jewelers exchange. It's probably eight or 10 story tower. The walkthrough lobby of it from one street to the other, it's about a block from the federal courthouse, is all high end jewelry stores, like really gaudy stuff, like big diamond encrusted jewelry everywhere but on the upper floors is mostly wholesalers and, and other jeweler salons and then those upper floors is like a spider web of all sorts of nationalities in the jewelry or diamond industry and i had multiple fences all throughout that building that would buy 
you know, one specialized in watches, one was blue stones. Um, a lot of times I started melting my own jewelry. I ended up getting a smelting pot, which is an asbestos pot. And if it was something really identifiable, I would just roughly take, you know, if it was a fake stone, I'd bust the stone out of it. For example, unfortunately, school rings, you didn't want to mix 10 carat and 14 carat. You know, I'd have, you know, two handfuls of school rings, take all the stones off, throw them in the smelter, and I'd make 10 carat gold bars. I would melt the bars. Right. And pour them into ingots. And there was one time in Fort Lauderdale, I had actually an efficiency, and I was making 14 and 10 carat bars of identifiable jewelry, melting it down. And- I had pulled the refrigerator out, and it was an old-school Florida Terrazzo 4. Yeah. The, the slag jumped out and hit that cold concrete and exploded a divot in the floor like this deep. I got hit in the face with all pieces of concrete from the explosion. So it was yeah, – I just got killed, you know, trying to uh, melt some gold down in the kitchen of this this place I had an apartment in Fort Lauderdale. But so, yeah, I had fences. I had another one, Ronell. Ronell went out of business. Gigantic – smelting place jewelry operation in Hollywood, California, because later on they got associated with traffickers and all that money laundering. But at that time they had an outpost from the Hollywood police department in there. And I'd come with a whole bag over my shoulder with all these melted bars that I was making. And uh, what they would do is they'd put you in the locked room. One of the people would come with a scale and some paperwork and they didn't care about IDs in those days. So I would, I had a fake uh, license from, an international license saying I was from Ireland, you know, I was on, I was on holiday, you know? So and, uh, it, that was what was my spiel back then. And so they would just give me a check that what they would do is they take all the raw smelted gold. They would then melt it, remelt it into proper bars and assay it, determine the spot value for that day. And I had a choice. I can get a check for that total weight. So I can get a 30, $40,000 check, whatever, whatever it was um, in whatever name I wanted it or I could just immediately sell it back. I could sell it back to them and get a check or I could keep it and just pay the commission for turning it into proper bars. And I would just always sell it up, of course, and, and walk out of there, you know, right past the police with, with a whole bunch of stolen South Florida gold over my so- shoulder. But so this is how I dealt with fences. I had another guy who was a former uh, police detective in New York City. He was thrown out of the force for some kind of corruption. Might have been during the NAF commission days back in New York. But anyway, so he was a really nice guy, great family, but he was really, really, uh, you know, corrupt. I don't want to say his name here because yeah, I still uh, talk to his family. But, uh, you know, let's, we call him John the Plumber, put it that way. So he'd meet me and, you know, always try to talk me down. I'm trying to talk him up. And, we, and he would always meet me with a pocket full of $100 bills. You know, what do I, do I come large or do I come small? I said, come large, you're meeting me. Come large, bring at least 50 grand, you know. I might have 30 grand worth of stuff, but I'm trying to talk about it in the whole 50. You know? <laughs> so these offenses, I had different types. Sometimes I would break a fence in if I was in a new community. I would, for example, be in California, Las Vegas, doing what I do. It was right after I hit Navarro, it exploded in the media. And I was living with uh, four girls from Ireland and one girl from England. They were on holiday. So here I am doing coke all day. Here they are smoking hash and drinking beer all day. And... You know, I was a young guy in my 20s. Right. I was having a blast at the time. I'm living with all these women. And every one of them is into me at various times. And, you know, so I had it made. I then traveled to uh, California. I told them, look, you guys were all talking about going to California. They didn't know I hit the sheriff's house. I said, uh, it's on me. I'm buying all tickets, but we got to leave like in the next two days. <laughs> so I rounded everybody up, went to California. Um, before I left, 
that gun, I traded it to a friend for a bulletproof vest. I don't know why I needed a bulletproof vest, but I, I decided to buy one from this guy. He had one. And I, when I was trading it, he dropped it on the floor of my friend's shop, and the hammer broke off, the gun fired, and one of us could have got shot in the feet. And it spun out so fast, that was Nick Navarro's gun. So if they ever find it today, it, have, it has a broken hammer on it. But uh, so, yeah, we went to California. I continued doing the same things, but this time I didn't have any fences. I was just accumulating jewelry and, you know, spending my savings that I took with me from out there. Plus, I was on a run. I was wanted in New York. So we all went out there, you know. Why were you wanted? uh, We were doing a bunch of uh, we were doing a bunch of crimes where we were like robbing drug dealers and even some civilians posing as the police and taking all their drugs and all that. And and we had a high speed chase. I actually dove out of the car, rolled while the police were chasing us, and I told the driver, um, you know, basically, uh, I put a gun in his in his stomach. <laughs> he wanted to pull over because his twin brother was the one doing some crimes with me. Right. He said, let me just pull over. I'm not involved. I said, you know what we came out here for, to pick up this other hidden jewelry. You knew there was a chance of cops. If you stop, and I had, I had, it, I kind of made the guy keep driving. So I said, look, man, you're going to make us wreck because he was a crappy driver. It was wet. It was November. And I just said, go real fast on a straightaway, break it, make a slow turn. I'm jumping out. Keep going. Don't stop for another mile. Let them keep chasing you and give us a chance to get out of the area. And that's what we did on a turn, on a high-speed turn. I jumped out, got banged up pretty bad. I, I quickly crawled under whatever was there, whatever vehicle on the side of the road. And so did my, uh, my partner, his twin. He jumped out immediately. We hid. And I'm watching these other cops passing him, you know, passing us and the sprays in our face. It was ice cold. It was like a sleet kind of snow. And I was like, holy crap, man. And they, they caught him. And, of course, he immediately told on his brother. And then when he caught his brother, he told on me. So I, I went on a run. So right. during, the period I hit, during the period I hit the virus house, I was a fugitive. And then the girls were all overextended their visas. So they were wanted, you know, by immigration or whatever you call it at that time. So we all went to California. California, you f- I was finding fences by basically I would take some jewelry to any jewelry store. And I've tried this in South Florida with newer people I wanted to deal with. And I would pose as, you know, I would go there maybe and buy something, spend you know, a couple of hundred dollars. And then I'd go back again. Hey, we're moving to the area. Hey, you know, um, we went to my aunt's storage unit. She passed away. She had all this jewelry laying around. And, you know, we just want to sell it for cash, no paperwork, because really her son was this and that. And we don't know the origins of it. You willing to buy it, you know, with no ID? If they said, yeah, I owed them right. <laughs> my fences because they didn't know where I got the stuff from, but I knew they were dirty and willing to work with me. And so that's how I accumulated many fences. And one guy stands out, a Russian guy, California, Hollywood. Was buying stuff for me all the time, constantly trying to. He was, I think, it was on either Santa Monica Boulevard or, or Hollywood Boulevard. I forget the street. Small shop, Russian guy, and he's always nickel and diming me and trying to get over on me and this and that, like as if I'm, you know, a crackhead or you know, some guy on meth, and he's gonna just try to get over. I said, look, you know, this is getting old, but I, but I play the game. Before that, I trained my fences who had jewelry stores to let me in only after closing hours, and here's why. Before the Russian, a few weeks before, I was in another fence. Bunch of jewelry product. Probably was hitting Beverly Hills. I was hitting Hollywood. I had a lot of jewelry and gold coins. I get up to his inside his store, and there's two detectives out there looking over his paperwork at the counter. 
And I know what they're doing, right? They're checking for records of receipt of stuff he bought, comparing it on stuff that's been stolen. I probably had most of the stuff they were looking for them standing behind these detectives at the counter. And so I just eased my way out without saying anything to my fence who owned the store, and I left. And I called him back the next day. He said, why'd you walk out? I said, you had two cops at your counter. He said, yeah, they're burglary detectives. People, they, they check what I'm buying against what's stolen. I said, yeah, I figured that, but I told you some of my stuff might have questionable origins, and I'm not trying to have them lay eyes on me. Right. So I left, and that's exactly what they were doing. I have a good sense of people and, and picking up the signals and what they were all about. I mean, didn't he realize that? No, he knew what they were. They were in there all the time. No, I know. I'm saying, didn't he realize, like, obviously I left because I told you some of the stuff. Like, why would I stay? Right. Who knows? You know, people ask things. You know, I'm always paranoid about somebody being wired when they're asking me something or right. bringing up a crime because I would think you're trying to set me up and then I'll just shut down. If I initiate it and it's something we did together, I'm going to go in your ear out of the blue. You're not going to know coming over. You're not going to, it's not going to be like, go oh, meet me here at five o'clock. No, it's going to be be accidentally running into you to have a conversation. Right. I was super cautious about being caught on tape in those days. So, I get paranoid if people ask me too many questions back in, in those days. You know how it is when you're living illegally. You know, if anybody asks you the wrong thing, it's like alarm bells. Well, do they know something? Are they setting me up? Are they wired? <laughs> you know? But uh, so I trained all my fences at that period. Hey, do me a favor. Just want to run into these cops again or any police or any of your customers or disrupt your business. If you close at 6 p.m. and I got to see you that day, I'll show up at like 6.05 right after you lock the last customer out. This way, me and you talk before you put your stuff away. We'll do some business and you let me back out. Yeah. You have no traffic. I had him trained. So I got the Russian guy trained like this also. So he's always trying to get over on me, always trying to get over on me. So one day I brought him a bunch of garbage. I figured it's about maybe eight, nine grand worth of stuff. He's looking through it. I'm in the back. I know where his bathroom was. I know he doesn't really he doesn't really lock his safe fully, especially at night. He's getting ready to pull his stuff back in. So his safe is sitting cracked. I look in the back room, it's sitting cracked open. And I say, okay, I'm gonna, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to help myself to whatever I can out of that safe while he's sitting there looking at that jewelry because I'm, I'm good like that. So right. while he was looking at it, I said, hey, let me use the restroom while you're checking the jewelry. You know, he's doing the acid test. He's looping the diamonds. I go in the back bathroom to tend to, and I quickly open his safe, and I grab a stack of hundreds, and a gigantic fat Turkish link necklace. It was like something a rapper might wear. It was right. so heavy. And I took that. So I ended up leaving there with about 50, 60 grand. So I pretended that I wasn't happy with his price because I figured if I if I agreed to the price he offered me, he might have to go back to the safe for the cash. So when he gave me the price, I said, I there you go again. You keep trying to get over on me. Listen, I'll think about it. I'll see you tomorrow. And I took my jewelry back from him and I left with all this stuff. Never, never went back. Never to see him again. Few weeks later, some meth heads held him up with a taser. He pulls up, pulls out a gun, and kills one of them. And then they started, you know, uh, harassing him at a shop. All the friends, and he had a, he actually had to shut down his store. But yeah, so there was a lot of incidents like that. <laughs> you ask about fences; those are some experiences. I, I was going to say, like you, your guy tries to your your buddy tries to rob me, I kill him, and then everybody's going to harass me. Right. He's so I guess the little his little the method uh, friends he had you know running around with him, but uh, why would you go to a jeweler store with a with a taser to, to rob a guy you know yeah wow well, yeah gonna be armed, so, and unless it's a chain store a person an owner who has a vested interest in that business is certainly gonna want to kill you when you try to yeah. rob.
So, you know, I didn't function like that. If I, if you screwed me over, I found 16 different ways to get back at you or, you know, in fact, you know, I've written a book about Robert Durst. I knew him years ago. I wrote a book about my relation with him and some of the weird stuff he's done around me that I knew Glenn Maxwell. We can get to that story in a minute, but I, I tease people now. I say, you know, there's a, there's a saying that says, you know, I have a, I have a bullet with your name on it. You know, when you're mad at somebody, you know, you're in the life or whatever. So my thing is I'm going to do like an image on my books for now on. It's going to be an outline of a bullet. And they're going to say, you like, you screw with me. I've got a book with your name on it. <laughs> now the straight books telling the stories. But uh, so that's the stories with some of the fences. I could probably go on and on for hours just talking about drama with fences. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent. How a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. How long until you eventually got caught for all the, or did you ever get caught for the burglaries? I eventually got caught. I hit uh, I hit the Windridge Yacht Charters family. They uh, they had a gigantic home at Harbor Beach. I don't know if you know Fort Lauderdale pretty well, and uh, they actually had two houses in Harbor Beach, and uh, a lot of famous like basketball players and sports figures lived in this certain area right by the ocean. You got Pier sixty six over there, Seventeenth Street Causeway, right by the ocean, and so I was hitting a lot of houses in there. I saw this house with a realtor, and to tell you how I got caught. One of the biggest heists I ever did. It was about $4 million, cash, jewelry, multiple Piaget, diamond encrusted Rolexes, Piaget woman's watches, tennis bracelets. Crazy good score. So that that, that the realtor showed me the house. I went to go see it another day to go hit the house, but they always had people working over there, like whether, you know, maids or this one or that one. One day they were having a Christmas party on one of their yachts. Now they had three yachts at that time, gigantic mega yachts that they would rent out to like Gloria Esteban and all these celebrities would have parties, you know, up and down the intercoastal, nice parties on their yachts or out in the ocean. And so I knew the Christmas party was going down a few days before Christmas and their whole family and the owners of the house would be on the yacht a few blocks away. At, uh, I, think, I think it was called Bahia Mar Yacht Club. So... I went, knock on the door, nobody there. I let, I knew the alarm wasn't even on. I picked the lock, went in. Quickly got the safe, got some paintings, put it in there. I had at this time I didn't have the liquid glove. I had some, some leather gloves on. Got the scanner on. I get everything in there. I'm gonna go because there's they the party on the yacht at the, the yacht club is so close to the house, I know they can be coming back and forth. I'm about to pull out of the driveway, and the guy in a bright yellow Corvette pulls in behind me, and I'm like, crap. So I'm trying to get the gloves off, and he pulls right behind me. He walks right up to me. I'm sweating from carrying the safe down the stairs and from the master bedroom. And uh, 
He says, can I help you? I said, hey, yeah, my name's such and such. I gave, us a, I gave him a bogus name. I said, Barbara such and such showed me this house not long ago. I wanted to see if I could see it again before I go back to Chicago for the holidays. And he goes, oh, yeah, she's still showing the house. We haven't sold it yet. It's my parents' house. We're having the Christmas party. Um, what's your name again? I'll tell him you pass by. Even he saw me sweating. And when I exited the last time with my hands full, the front door was open a little bit. So later from the legal work, this discovery, he noticed I was sweating in South Florida, you know, <laughs> just carried his safe. So he noticed, and the second he turned around from talking to me, he noticed their gigantic doors were open ajar. And he right. in there. So he, he kind of panicked. He, he had a gun on and He armed himself and went through the house real quick and was calling 911 as I'm hauling ass out of there. Well, if you know South Florida, you have the intercoastal waterway to A1A, you have drawbridges at that time over each one, like Sunrise, right. whatever the streets was, 17th Street. So rather than me cutting out and going straight for, I believe it would have been 17th Street to I-95, I got the scanner on. I unplug it. I throw it on the seat next to me. I quickly changed shirts. I had a difficult shirt on, and I head towards A1A. Now you dead end at the ocean. You got to make a left or a right. I ate the red light, went around traffic, and I'm trying to get to Las Olas. Las Olas is where the elbow room is, like where Elvis made a movie, a very famous bar. So Las Olas, where it intersects with A1A on the ocean, I made that left and tried to make the Las Olas bridge because I know from experience of doing burglaries on that side of the, those bridges, they'll contact all the bridge tenders that they think they trapped the burglar on one side, and they'll try to trap them while they search the streets and look for you, you and your vehicle. So I knew those bridges were going to get put up. I knew this guy was paranoid the way I, the way what was presented, and so I took the light in front of A1A in Las Olas, in front of all the traffic, praying to God there was no cops around. There usually are tons of them, but there was none. And the, I'm aiming for the bridge, like two streets up. I'm doing like 90 miles an hour. As soon as I get on, I hear the guy saying, "That's like pretty much as I'm getting to the light." I hear the dispatch saying. Uh, Dispatch, notify all the bridge tenders, hurry up and throw the bridges up. Because the call is coming in already, Mike. Yeah. Or what happened? The homeowner's in pursuit. The homeowner's armed. I'm like, crap, the homeowner's going to shoot me. The cops are going to shoot me. So all this you know, stuff's building. And I'm like, okay. I ate another light, and I floored it just as that was coming over the air. And I get to the bridge, and the arms are starting to come down. Now, there's a split second. You can make the arm. Yeah. What kind of, are you going to make the bridge? If it starts opening, you're going to hit it and get killed or fall in the water if you made it that far. So I flew as the arm was coming down. And just before I started raising, I made it to the other side. And I look in my mirror and the bridge is starting to go up. So they couldn't trap me on the ocean side. I went up some side streets. I put another tag on the vehicle. I took side streets home. At one point, I had my window open. I, I went through a construction zone on Dixie Highway. Friend, friend of mine's got a tire shop there. I was going to try to hide the vehicle there. And uh, there's a cop next to me. I got the scanner on. So I'm listening to the calls about me, that they're the sealing off the air. You know, putting a helicopter up. They're bringing dogs. I'm listening to all the calls about me while I'm listening to the scanner. A cop passes me in a construction zone, arms distance away. His window's open. I'm hearing the same calls out of my left ear from his radio that I'm hearing on my radio. Right. And he's looking down, like taking notes and looking around at traffic. And I'm literally side by side with him, you know, but I'm always clean cut. I had thrown a different color shirt on. This guy didn't even glance over. Had he glanced over, he had me because there was nowhere to go. I was stuck in traffic. <laughs> Construction zone. Got away with it. So how did I get caught? 
Fast forward, I'm selling all this jewelry. I'm altering stones. I got my friends pulling big stones out, putting like a big, uh, I think it was an aquamarine, gigantic stone, pulled that out, put in a black, uh, I forgot the name of the stone. But anyway, we're switching out stones. If something had a lot of diamonds, I would take out every few diamonds and have somebody put rubies or emeralds in. And then I would take those to get maximum dollar. I would give them to other fences in Palm Beach on consignment. So now I had a completely altered piece that instead of getting 30000 for it, I might get 40000 or 50000 for it. They put it in their window. I just stole it from Fort Lauderdale. But it's altered enough where they can't say where it came from anymore. Right. I still have the loose stones to play with to make some side money. And then when they sell it, hey, hey, Bill, we sold your piece. You know, we have an offer, not exactly what you want. We're going to take our 10%. You want to sell it? Yeah, let it go. <laughs> I had stolen stuff in consignment shops all over Florida. Right. So I'm on a binge one time, still using coke, still trafficking coke, still trafficking guns. I'm in a motel in Fort Lauderdale near the ocean, and I'm by myself because I don't bring my I don't bring the illegal things I do to the house ever. I've always had a hotel room. I don't bring I don't bring my dirt to the house. Right. And I'm ashamed of what I'm doing. You know, frankly, you know, I'm not proud of what I'm doing. My family's worried about me. They, the cops are always looking for me for one reason or another. You know, my sister would say the only time we have peace is when you're in jail. You know, why can't you just smoke a joint once in a while? Why are you using coke and, you know, stealing everybody's stuff? Right. <laughs> so, well, at least I'm kind of good at it, you know. But at the same time, anytime I had something nice, you know, what do you have? Can I need a pearl necklace. I need this. I need that. Oh, yeah. The same people that they turned it back on you, they sure had their hand out when things were going good. I I, I know it well. I, I know those people well. Right. So, you know, I love them, but, you know, it's just it's, it's part of human nature. So I'm in this hotel. There's women walking around. I spoke to a few of them. I'm not really with all that unless I know it's a you know nice woman, whatever you know weekend warrior type chick. But these weren't exactly like that. They were more like the stripper kind, you know. And I wasn't really trying to hang with that and end up getting sick or something. This guy kept pacing my room and then going in their room, and I knew one of these women. So when he took off, I said to her, "I said, who the freak is this guy that keeps going in your room, but he's passing my room constantly?" I said, I've been up for days. I'm paranoid like everybody else around here. <laughs> and I don't know if he's a cop or he's coming to get me or who the hell this guy is. Oh, he's just tweaking. He he's, takes a hit. He goes for a walk. You know, he gets paranoid. He wants to go for a walk. I says, well, he's freaking me out. While I'm talking to them, this guy knocks and they let him in. So now I'm in the room with a guy in somebody else's room. So I immediately pull out my gun and I told him, I said, get back to the bathroom, man. I put this guy in the bathroom. I said, oh, I said, are you a cop? <laughs> I was out of my mind. I would never do that if I was in my right mind. Right. I'm so paranoid. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not a He said, I'm just out here getting high. I'm paranoid. I said, I'm not going to tell you where I am, but you've passed my hotel room a hundred times. And like, what is wrong with you? He said, I'm paranoid. I can't sit still when I when I use when I use the Coke. I take a hit and I go for a walk. I said, dude, you're freaking me out. I said, take your clothes off. I want to see that you have a gun or a badge or if you're wired. That's how paranoid I was. He strips down, he's in tears, this and that. I uh I had a I had I had learned from buttons to always have a handcuff key on me. So in all my clothes, I sewed in the Velcro patch in the back, right where I could reach it. I was a lot thinner than I could easily reach around. I could right. pull the cuffs up in front if I wanted to. Plus I could pick locks without the cuff most most times. Because a locksmith that I I know the things I could open them with. But I would always just have like the Smith & Wesson or the peerless handcuff key, always behind a piece of Velcro in my pants. So I had a pair of shorts on with the cuff key, and 
he gets dressed all of a sudden um i'm trying to think how this exactly panned out so i let him go we talk we exchange information i don't think i gave him my real information he gave me his he owns some uh cleaning uh, uh dry cleaners called the chain of them in florida but he was like a weekend binge tech type of guy so but i didn't know he was out on bond for a case and he was cooperating with the police oh uh, okay so i was gonna say he went he must have gone and told the police like yeah so this this goes for a couple of hours. I have a Rolex presidential on with a blue lapis face covered in diamonds, aftermarket diamond band, diamond bezel. It's from the it's from the Winders heist. I'm wearing this watch. This guy, after we're talking for a while and things calm down, he says, "Hey, Bill, that's a beautiful watch." He said, "I know uh, Fred Winders have one just like that." <laughs> he said the name right on the head. The person I stole it from eighteen months before. And I said, oh, really? I said, no, no, no. This is my father gave me this gift when I graduated from college, you know, in New York, just to blow him off. But I was like, holy fuck. He said, I used to be a bartender on one of their yachts. They have a yacht company in town. What are, what, the, what are the odds? It happens. It, it happened. So he didn't believe a word I was saying. He went out and talked to his cops. He was cooperating in Fort Lauderdale PD. I met a guy named Bill. Um, he's got a gigantic, you know, diamond encrusted Rolex. So I swear it's Fred's watch. And so I go back to my room and one of the couple of people came over and we were waiting for one of their friends to bring some drugs over. And the guy ran in the room all paranoid. He was, what the hell are you guys doing here? There's this whole parking lot crawling with cops and there's a helicopter over it. <laughs> they figured out who I was. And I was the guy they were looking for, for like being the most prolific burglar in, you know, South Florida history, pretty much one of them anyway. And so they realized that they finally had me and where I was, thanks to this guy and these, these, these women. So he goes in there, he goes in the bathroom, but all you hear is him flushing. <laughs> What's this dope that he brought over? And he's all freaked out. They lock him on the door. I look out. It's a men and women standing out there. And uh, so how I get caught for this one was, um, you know, I, I, none of these people know my full business at all. It's just right. Crazy. And I'm wanted, and I'm like prolific burglar in Fort Lauderdale. I'm like, oh crap, I'm really screwed. <laughs> so they they said, wait, we were detectives from Fort Lauderdale PD. Where's that guy that just ran in here? And he's like, oh, I'm right here. You know, so these Westfield friends. And I said, well, just stand right there. Well, while they're dealing with him, I came out from behind the door, literally like second floor of this outdoor motel, nice little nice east side motel, and I'm walking to get the hell away from them. And I got like six doors down. I'm outside of the room. They stepped out. They said, hey, you, get back over here. We didn't tell you you can go. And it was cops all in the parking lot and the helicopter. So the people down below thought I was giving permission to walk out. So they didn't try to stop me. Right. Detectives are now outside yelling for me. They confront me. I've got the key for my for my room in my hand. And I'm like, crap, I'm waiting for me to get rid of this thing. Because in there I have a briefcase. I have an ultrathermic lance, which is used for cutting open safes and vaults. It's a 10,000 degree oxygen. You still have the watch on? Yeah, I still had the watch on. <laughs> so they're like, um, yeah, what's your name? You know, and I, I made up some name, Bill Kelly, you know. And so they're asking me all these questions. Well, do you have an ID and this and that? And I said, well, I'm just staying here temporarily. And, you know, I forgot all the stories I was telling, but I'm probably starting to get tripping myself up a little bit. Cause I was up for days. I couldn't keep, you know, keep it right. And so they said, look, if you have a room here, um, they brought the manager and the manager said, Oh yeah, he has a room, such and such room. 
the managers told us they're not going to let you renew the room. So after that room expires, they're going to want you out. They're not going to renew it. And then you're going to have to get off the property or get trespassed. And we'll be here for that. Or you can just tell us who you really are because we really think there's way more going on here. And so it was a standoff for like three hours until like I think 11 or 1 o'clock all around checkout time. They said to the managers, checkout time for him. Are you allowing him to renew the room? And I said, no. May we go in? They said, yes. So now they had their legal right to enter the room. The second they get in there, my briefcase, you know, they get in there. It's got like literally like my real parole papers from New York are in there. Like 37 sets of fake IDs are in there, fake licenses and international licenses, several sets of lock picks, a police scanner, gloves, you know, no weapons, but it was enough to show you're a professional burglar. Then I had a case, DuPont Dissect. It's an oxygen lance that would cut through anything. Acetylene torches burned at 2,700 degrees. My torch, it, it put pure oxygen down the copper rod with magnesium inserts in it. The tip, right. big sparkle at 10,000 degrees in the tip. Yeah. I could rip through anything with it, and I was. And so they found that in the room. They said, yeah, are you okay? Because, well, where's your family? Where's this? Where's that? I said, oh, my family, you know, God forgive me. My family was all killed in a plane crash, you know, 10 years ago. I'm on my own. You know, I just, you know, don't have, I'm not in my right mind. I work odd jobs, you know, delivering pizza. I was just making up every story, you know, but I'm dressed nice. I have jewelry. And you're like, you're, just like, you're so full of shit. We know who you are. Why don't you just tell us? We don't know your real name, but we know what you've been doing around here. <laughs> they open the briefcase and they say, we think this is you. And they have my real information on it. And I said, okay, because the one guy said he jogs. And he said, if you try to take off running, he said, I run five miles a day. He said, I'll catch your ass. And the uh, second they pulled the parole paper, I'm sitting by the poolside. They pulled my parole papers. Now there's a big crowd of tourists and everybody staying at the hotel watching this like Mexican standoff of me with these detectives for like hours. So finally, when they showed me that, I just stood up. They said, where are you going? I turned around. I said, I said, cuff me up. Here's my real, that's my real name. Let's get this over with. And that's, that's how I got caught. That guy turned me in for the watch. Yeah. That was one way I got caught. You know, that right. That was the big one. That How much time had, did you do on that? Well, God, I had to take them to my storage unit and give back a bunch of stolen stuff. And then I drove them around. Oh. You know, burglaries I did. I kind of told on myself on some other things. In exchange for, I think I told on maybe 60 burglaries I did, including Navarro, in exchange for being able to plead the three burglaries, including the Windridge. And, uh, yeah, so there was that. <laughs> I had returned millions of dollars in, in assets basically um i had a big restitution with that case i ended up with uh i think i did like three years in the county and then like another they put me on like 10 years probation which i quickly violated and i ended up with six years in prison at that time so six yeah. years total including the three years yeah well I, I was doing some time for something else in the county but i was held there and i kept stalling my case around trying to get a better deal they were trying to put me in prison at that time i had no significant record like 90s so my record really accumulated later on but yes i i, I ended up uh, like i said having to give back a bunch of stuff and it was funny because i used to go to a lot of soldier fortune conventions and so i had a dummy grenade you know like a paperweight grenade a real right didn't have the explosives or the fuse and i had that there and then i had a, a russian ballistic knife i don't know if you know what those are you pull the pin and it's a big dagger, and you, you pull the trigger, and, and it'll come straight out, and it'll go into somebody or side of beef all the way. It's like the birth. 
they're called ballistic knives. It's spring loaded. So I had that there. So either from that or the grenade, like the pin that were going through the stolen stuff, asking me to try to remember where it came from. And so it saved them their work from going through records. But <laughs> the pin hit the floor and they went running. I'm, I'm in shackles from the jail. Amateur right. With a bunch of help. <laughs> that pin hit the floor. They went running. I said, there's nothing explosive in there. It's probably from the knife or the, or the paperweight grenade. <laughs> right. They all went running down the end of the storage unit and left me standing down with my shackles. But it was probably crazy experiences. I have a book coming out, another one. You know, I wrote two books. Your fans can know your audience. You know, my website's up there, plus they're on Amazon. One about Robert Durst, one about Glenn Maxwell. But I have another one coming out, which is more like the secular story of my my, my life. And right. Stupid things I did and how I believe, because I am a man of faith now. I'm not perfect. But I believe God had his hand on my dumbass all along, because I could have been killed many times. And the things I did, I put myself out there. I'd been shot at. I had some close calls, you know, high speed chases. What what happened with the uh, the Durst? What's the Durst book? The Durst book is called "Sex and the Serial Killer: My Bizarre Times with Robert Durst." I I have sent you some images, and it's uh, it's about my way, my story of how I met Robert Durst in the early '80s. I was attending locksmith school in, in Manhattan. Sammy, the guy who died, and myself were coming out of a, a fast food restaurant. He was rushing down the street with Susan Berman. Susan Berman's father was a, a notorious mobster back years ago, Dave the Jew Berman in Las Vegas. He ran Vegas for Meyer Lansky. So she was a screenwriter and author, very good friends of Robert Durst. I run into him, not knowing who he was. My drink's all over me. He's cursing me out. I have a Brooklyn attitude. I'm already dealing a little bit of coke, and I have a gun on me. So I said, F you, mother effer. I'm like a young guy. I'm like in my early 20s. I go to pull the, the piece out. Sammy grabs me. So what are you doing, man? It's a soda. It's not worth it. He has a gun on him. Durst had a gun on him because he, he was collecting rents. He owns property all over the place. And a lot of the strip clubs near my school, the strip, uh, they were like the peep shows back in the day when it was real seedy. Now Disney has everything. He, his family, the Durst organization, owned a lot of those places. A lot of the renters were mobsters. A lot of the cash, a lot of the rent was paid in cash. So he was, I think, in the neighborhood at that time collecting rents personally. And I happened to crash into him. He crashed into me. We had words. And that's how I met him. She got a hold of him. Bobby, Bobby, relax, relax. It was just an accident, you know. He got real mouthy with me. And I was quick to respond to that, you know, back, especially back then. And, uh, we had some words, and then she said to me right in front of Robert Durst, she said, you know, please ignore him. His wife was recently murdered. You know, he's really not in his right mind. And I was like, okay. And his look to her, to Susan Berman, it looks to kill. It looks like he killed her then. That was a Freudian slip on her part. Because at that stage, Kathy Durst had only been missing a few months, and he had been just reporting her missing. Nobody was investigating it as a murder back in the year when I met him. So for her to say that, she knew more than she was saying. Ultimately, right. ultimately we find out that Susan was was his alibi because she suppo Kathy supposedly disappeared. She was going to become a pediatrician at Albert Einstein's School of Medicine. Susan Berman posed as her and said, I won't be in for my, my test today, whatever testing she was doing. I'm not feeling well. And the dean didn't really recognize the voice. And normally they wouldn't call a dean. They would call somebody else. So they deliberately called somebody who wouldn't recognize the voice, and that person, the dean, notified 
the, the professor, oh, Kathleen's not well. She's not going to come in, you know. And that kind of made it like look like she never came back or whatever's happened to her. I forgot the whole the whole story he lied about for so many years, and then he kept changing the story. But um, ultimately, fast. So I got friendly with him, and then what he did was at, at this same incident, he tried to really talk walk it back because. He was pissed at her, and I'm very protective of women, and I knew she, that she was in danger. I was like, I, it immediately dawned on me. This guy killed his wife, and this chick knows it. And she accidentally blurted it out <laughs> to a complete stranger. So I'm like kind of torn between where I needed to be and trying to protect her. And then really, okay, if this guy is like really as wealthy as this lady just telegraphed that he is, you know, maybe I could find a way to get in his pocket. So we exchanged information that he said something along the lines. He asked me why I was in the area. And I said, oh, I'm going to the locksmith school, you know. And he says, hey, would you be the kind of person with that with those skills willing to cross the line? I said, for the right price, anything's possible. And that's how I met Robert Thurst. That developed into him coming over periodically to my house in Brooklyn, wanting to use the upstairs apartment or the basement and bringing different women there, you know, doing his thing, whatever they were, call girls, friends, this, that. Um one of them was a transsexual and me starting to see more and more odd behaviors and photographs and things that I, that's why I call him a serial killer. He had things with him that were, were not, there weren't just like bondage type things that, you know, people might be into. They were like death implements. There was like saws and there was like, you know, tarp and this weird shit and the stuff he used to bring over and they want to leave at my house. And then he would show me pictures and one girl, I go to check on him because I wouldn't participate. He would just pay me. He would pay me for use of the, of the place. And when I went to check, you know, they're all naked and this and that. And, and this one young lady, you know, you couldn't help notice she had cherry tattoos, you know, on her. And uh young girl, she's probably 18, 19 years old. And fast forward a few months later, he's showing me pictures of some obviously dead women. And that girl's there. And that's described in the book in the condition she was in. But he was convicted of what? Two murders, right? Or just one? He has been under investigation for murdering Kathy Durst, his first wife, who I'm friends with her family, um, in 1982. But all the prosecutors in Westchester County, New York, would never prosecute. It's speculated, rumored, and alleged that his family was paying so much money in donations to the various prosecutors' campaigns to keep him from being prosecuted. You know, they were helping him. And so now there's probably going to be litigation starting soon against that family for covering up for him so long because them them, them allegedly doing that enabled him to continue going on killing other people. Right. Okay, so Susan now became a liability to Robert Durst over years. The jinx came out on HBO, became huge. I was, right, I was in prison. I was writing a book about my life. Bobby Durst was going to be, you know, a few pages. You know, the weird shit he did around me and the old guy's piece of crap. My co-author, Gary Greenberg, is a friend of mine. He's right now the editor of the National Enquirer. He's one of the editors there. And he's a crime writer. So Gary's in Boca. And he said, look, this is huge right now. They're you know, you're putting him in your book, in your manuscript. Write a quick book about everything about him and we'll put that out. I'll help you put that out while you're incarcerated. And I wrote the book about my experiences Sex and the Serial Killer, My Bizarre Times with Robert Durst. It came out, was doing really well while I was in prison. Man, it became in the National Choir, of course. It got in there several times. It got in the in the Sun of London. It got in I think the New York Post, numerous publications. While I'm incarcerated, you'll see on the cover of it in the top corner, 
um, Nancy Grace covered that book on her podcast while I was still incarcerated. Now, she's known as the queen of true crime. Now they call me the king of true crime, the true crime king. It's kind of weird how it played out. But uh, so Nancy Grace loved the book. She hates Robert Durst, obviously. She's really tough on violent criminals and all that. You know, you know she is. She hates everybody. Right. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. Everybody equally. She's over the top, but that's what makes her, like, you know, attracted to people as a talking head because you never know what kind of crazy crap she's going to say next. Right. <laughs> so. You know, I think the lady who killed the, the baby was called Top Bomb or something, the one in Orlando. Yeah. Casey Anthony. Yeah. He kept referring to her as Top Bomb, you know. <laughs> you know, it was just horrible. But so I had a lot of attraction on attraction on that. And then I started writing about Glenn Maxwell. Now, I've been counseling for many years over something that happened to me at the house at her hands and being drugged. I wrote my book about her called Glenn, Sensational and Impure. I started going through counseling in prison. Next thing you know, they're blowing up in the media because Epstein's getting arrested. She's worried about it. And that's one of the things she told me. She wanted to eliminate Epstein. This is years ago. She said, he's going to be the death of me. You know, and and, and it was all kinds of problems between me and her at the very end of our of our unfortunate relationship. But uh, so I started when writing. You were out. This is when you were out. You were, out. you were friends with her or? Right. I met her through... Epstein, who I met when I was at a fence, I was at a fence's place of business on Palm, in Palm Beach on Worth Avenue. Um, real quick, this fence had some of the uh, jewelry from Windridge and some other uh, you know places. Some on consignment, some he was buying outright from me. I'm not going to say his name now. He's passed away, but uh, he had a diamond salon on second floor on Worth Avenue. I went up in a salon. This shows you how I won't explain how I met Jeffrey Epstein. I go in there. I got stuff with me again. I'm a fugitive from some other case, you know, because I, I don't have a habit of jumping bond and not going to court. <laughs> so I'm always wanted for something in those days, right? And I see he's with somebody, and the, that person has a, a young teenage girl with him, and they're talking. Uh, I told them, you know, take care of your business. And I acted like I was just looking through the case on the other side of the slum. He has like celebrities in there, heads of state, all kinds of people shop at this guy's place. Diamonds are gigantic just dripping with nonstop diamond jewelry. And if you know Worth Avenue, it's like Rodeo Drive for Palm Beach. It's just the highest end of the highest end. So I'm in there, and all of a sudden I see the guy. The girl looks like uh, Jody Foster from Taxi Driver. Pretty much exact, like a doppelganger, they call it. Yeah. She looked about 14, 15 years old, though. Next thing I know, I guess he didn't hear me there, didn't forgot I was there. I see his hand on her on her butt and then sliding in the back of her shorts. And I know no matter what the circumstances is, that chick's underage and this guy is a creep. So I just bided my time, <clears throat> cleared my throat, and he stopped doing it. But when they left, I told my friend, I said, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go grab lunch. And I followed him. I was going to confront him. Unwanted. I've got a gun on me. I've got a silencer on me. I've got a bunch of stolen jewelry on me. But I'm always... Well dressed, I think I probably had a suit on at that time. Whatever, I followed him up the road. He went to Taboo. I don't know if you know the famous restaurant Taboo. He went in there. I followed him in there. I got another table. I called him over. He didn't even want to talk. And I said, "Hey, you were in such and such salon a few minutes ago." And I confronted him about what happened. And he tried to talk his way out of it. I said, "Listen, if I want to be an asshole," I said. I, he said it was his niece, and they're playing around. I said, "If I want to be an asshole, he's got videos all in that place." You're definitely on video with your hand down that chick's shorts. And she's not an adult. 
Okay, I don't care what you do in the public, what you're into. I don't judge your life. I said, but that's that's a kid, you know. And he was talking his way out of it. And I guess he suspected he was going to be confronted with that because I said, you know, come over. And then I went to his table. I said, do me a favor, join me at my table privately for a minute. And he just sat there like with a smug look and whispered to her. So I'm pretty sure he realized he was about to be confronted and prepped her for what he was going to say to me. Because I told him, I, I pulled the gun. I said, you're going to sit right here. I told Epstein, sit at the table. Don't freaking move. And I said, I'm serious. I got nothing to lose. Don't move. And I said, because if you do, it's, it's going to end badly. I said, the best thing that can happen is the cops show up and see those videos. So he stayed there. I went over to talk to her. Same thing. She said, oh, you know, it was niece. We play like that. I'm 18. I says, you're not 18. And she gave me some name. I forget now. I says, you're not 18. I said, and that's not cool. He's a piece of shit. You need help getting away from him. I'll take you wherever you need to go. You know? And she's like, no, 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 seriously. So she had her story prepped by him probably a few seconds before. And that's how I met him. So he's the same way like Durst. Like all of these people that I've met over the years, you know, they try to, especially if, you, if they're in the middle of doing something dirty and I'm being forceful with them, I try to portray something I really don't want to do, but I'll, I'll make people think I'm going to do it. Right. You know? So I would have the gun and the silencer a lot of times in the briefcase when I went to see fences, open it on their counter. They'd see that piece sitting there. And they would think twice, you know, Bill's not the kind of person I want to try to screw over. If I was right. doing cocaine deals, go to see Colombians, Cubans, same thing. I'd open a bag, I'd put the piece to the side, I'd dig for the cashier. They'd say, oh, okay, you know, let me not screw with Bill. You know, and it just gives people pause because I, right. I did a lot of stuff alone. And you need to have something. If you don't have backup, you need to have some kind of intimidation factor going on. So right. I used the New York attitude and the, and, the, and the visual of the piece. So... We exchanged information. I, I told him yeah, I was a jewelry wholesaler. He goes, oh, I buy a lot of jewelry. And he gave me his number. And that's how I stayed in touch with him. And then you read the book, how things played out at the, <clears throat> excuse me, at the house and some of the videos I ultimately saw and how resentful he was that I had pulled the gun on him in a, in a public place. You know, he was really, it was bothering him for so long that he turned the tables on me one time in the house with one of the security detail. And I was trapped in a room. And we were arguing, and then he was showing me like how many people he owned, and I saw some videos. I detail who's on some of the videos I personally saw, and some of them you've seen in the news, some of them you haven't. I'm one of the few people in the world that's actually laid eyes on these blackmail videos, and I literally, I've been in counseling for many years about it. I've talked to the victim rights attorneys, and then after what Glenn did to me, they were trying to get me. I would see traffic. I would see traffic. There was. Girls coming and going from the house all the time. And I told him and her, I said, what are all these girls coming and going all the time? I said, they look pretty young. He said, oh, no, they're models, and they're, they're giving him massages and this and that. And then I'm fooling around with Glenn once in a while. She started to open up to me about a lot of things. She had adult assistants. We had threesomes. Everything was fine. But I'm always sensed like I'm being recorded in this freaking house. So when they're inviting a third woman to the bed, and it was one of these young girls, I'm like, no. I said, I don't feel comfortable with that. They, they, to me, they're underage, and I, I don't believe you that they're not. I think he was trying to catch, get me on video with him also, turning the tables about me putting him on the spot that day um, and trying to find a way to blackmail me or keep me quiet and whatever. And I would never went for it, but I was back there a few times, and one of the last times, like I said, it's in the book, um, I left with some things which ultimately were were taken back by law enforcement. And with, between that and some of those early victims coming forward, nobody did a thing to these people. They will continue to get away with it for years and years and years. 
So my my that book blew up. If you Google William Steele with like Prince Andrew, you know Hillary Clinton. Uh, you, you Google my name with uh, you know with Glenn Maxwell. You see all the articles come up about my book and the revelations of what I did with this stuff. The fact that I've been talking to the attorneys for years about it. I didn't want a thing. I didn't want to. I was technically a victim of hers because some of the stuff that happened was when I was when I was drugged. I didn't know I was realized I was drugged. But I'm a guy, you know, and you know who's going to complain about two women drugging you and having their weight with you, you know, right? Because it was consensual until it wasn't, right? So there's that. But I never really wanted. I said the best I would do with these lawyers. If you want any thing about what I saw on the videos, I would testify to that at the civil hearings and all that. Um, if whether it was your client or not, I don't know. I'll, I can maybe look at some of the pictures and let you know if I saw some of them. But uh, and then I've been in counseling for years over it because once it went in the news and I realized how many people started dying behind coming forward against them and the Clintons. You know, I don't know how much you're going to be able to air of, of this part of it on your channel, but uh, the certain we'll things like, uh, huh? We'll see. Yeah, I was on Sean Atwood, okay? And he had been deplatformed de for talking about Andrew so much and then naming some of the victims in the UK. There's different rules there than there are here. Mm -hmm. So he got deplatformed and like his fans had to get involved and they re restored his platform after I think a few months. But he's had me on twice. Both times they went viral. There's a clip of him saying, "My God, William Steele! Every time you come on, it's two, three hundred thousand views." <laughs> so he's he's uh, he's he's invited me to London to come on and do some shows. But he loves it because he's been up there rear end for years, up Prince Andrew and Maxwell, and I come out of prison telling my story with a book in hand, you know, and the proof from the attorneys and everything. My current guest co-host is Samantha Markle, Meghan Markle's sister. Prince Harry's sister-in-law. A gem of a human being. Uh, uh, well, well, Megan's a horrible human being. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, she's, that's what I'm saying. She just, everything I see about her and, you know, uh, Prince Henry apparently uh, goes along with everything she says. I mean, that. He's, oh, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Is what, I don't know how that happened. The guy had the world at his feet. If he couldn't take on all the royal duties that were required, he probably could have said, hey, I have some PTSD from the war and killing all these Taliban. He's bragging all the time. You know, uh, to tell the queen, look, you know, can you give me half the duties that I normally would have? Why abandon that lifestyle? <laughs> Get out of your mind. Why, and why be with a woman that mocks what your family has done for generations and generations and mocks the people that you're, you know, mocks an institution that is, that is, you know, a thousand years old and, and, and you know, like, who who are you? Who do you think you are? Every family has bad and weird stuff going on, but overall, I think they've done a lot of good, and they can yeah. do good and improve. I mean, it's just disgusting. She just wants to be an A-list. Now, there's things I know now from talking to Samantha that I cannot say on this show. I may be talking privately. But there was reasons that Samantha and her father were not invited to the royal wedding when she married Harry. And they nothing like what Megan's putting out. They have so much on Megan that would like blow the internet up again if they released it. And I love their whole we just want to be left alone, but we're gonna go on this mega tour and write a book and do uh do a, a documentary and what, what you don't sound like someone who wants to be left alone. Like you're not what are you doing? That South Park episode I think made fun of all that. <laughs> it's the worldwide privacy tour. Leave us alone. My reality show. Okay. 
either. Which now has 11 million views on TikTok alone. A fan says you're blowing up on TikTok. I said, what the hell is TikTok? I've been in prison half my life. He turned me on to it. When I got out of prison, I was living with a wacky Seventh-day Adventist couple. Um, she was a pen pal for years, totally innocuous. I knew she was married. I wasn't hitting on her, trying to you know get some crazy conversation going. They had this. They agreed to let me stay there, and we agreed to film the A&E show there about what it's like to get out of prison and how to hold recidivism down by adequate housing when you get out. This sign they made was on my bedroom wall. No drinking or drugs, no smoking, no strip clubs or bars, when or overnight, no R-rated movies, pornography, no taking the Lord's name in vain. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is uh, this is excessive. Okay. That's on episode one. The second I walked out, I, we were in COVID lockdown. I gained weight. I was pale as a ghost. I hadn't had a haircut for a year. Guys were dying all around me. Friends of mine died. I came out of that screwed up condition. And I'm filming. I got cameras on me the whole first day when I look like crap, feel like crap. All I want to do is lay down, right? Get, maybe get in the bath or something, get my hair cut off. I walk into this bedroom with that on the wall. I says, I feel like I'm being pranked. Now, I can't give away much because you can't give away spoilers per my contract. But that's out of one of their uh, trailers anyway. So the rule board's on my wall. I have a freaking unicorn light, night light. They painted the walls like a peach or pink color, whatever the hell it was. I have like girly blankets and comforter on there. I'm like, what are you guys doing? You know, I just got out of prison. What are you trying to? But I couldn't have house guests anyway, so nobody could see the room but me. But then, right. holy crap, this is on national television. But then, you know what? Here's how I played it. I'm like, you know what? I live with the weirdest people and cellmates in prison. You know, you, you don't always get to pick them. You know, once in a while, you can. I could deal with that crap. I could deal with these two people that were just giving me a hard time. Right. And the husband, if you saw him, Mark. He's like, oh, I was just trying to test you. And I'm like, dude, you're you're a weirdo, and you've never done a, a second of time in your life, and you don't know much about my background, because I know your wife longer than I know you, and you don't test somebody coming out of prison. You, you, you got to give them their space and help right. them. And, you know, they got to decompress. You don't test them with girly stuff all over the freaking bedroom. So I just wanted to show you that. Getting back to the shirt, if you look at almost all of my sit-downs, when the producers sit you down and they say, Tell us how you felt when you walked in the room and you saw the, you know, how they prepared it for you. You know, after eighteen years in prison, Bill. You know, so what happened? So what, what? Let's go back to your story. So what? I mean, how ultimately did you you ended up in prison for, in federal prison for what reason? No, I was in state only state. I was in state for burglary, grand theft, fleeing. Oh, I thought you were in federal prison. No, I never made it to the feds. Unfortunately, I, I just. <laughs> The hellacious trip through the state system, you know, loaded with uh, probably a lot of the same stuff you have there, but a lot, um, probably a lot worse conditions. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, what state? Uh, I was in Florida. I got transferred as a high escape risk to uh, Interstate Compact to Virginia, and I got released from Virginia. <clears throat> they had me in a supermax, you know, escaped from prison, but I didn't do anything fancy. But because they knew my background, locksmith, alarm technician, burglar, you know, could open locks. I would go on trips. If we got transferred to Florida from one prison to another, I would generally take something with me. They had these ID clips, you know, some of them with the metal, some of the plastic ones. Right. The ones have that spring. I'd get that spring out. You bend it a certain way. You can open the cuffs with it pretty easily. There's ways to file them down, pick the, uh, so I, I get transferred with the, the immobilization black box on, you know, I'm overweight. I got a little bit of a stomach. So 
now the black box and the cuffs are cutting into here. I mean, you've been on trips where you had all yeah. that damage in your wrist, right? And in my case, they throw an electric belt on me for good measure because I'm escape risk. So they have a remote control, and if, if they want to be jerks or if you do something stupid, they just hit the remote and 100,000 volts to your spine is going to pretty much drop anybody. Then, of course, the leg irons. In my case, sometimes in the Supermax, they would even have, after all that stuff was put on, um, they had these mittens so you couldn't pick locks. Because <laughs> sometimes on some of my trips, for the hell of it, I, you know, Florida's a long state. You might be on that bus 12 hours, 16 hours, going to different facilities, waiting for everybody to get on and off and all that nonsense. I would spit that out, pick the padlock that was on the chain, get that chain threaded through everything, take the black box off, and then pick the handcuffs and, and free my hands up for the trip. Because I knew my destination, and when we got to figure we were an hour out or half hour out from where I needed to go, I just put all the restraints back on and locked myself back up. <laughs> so I did that a couple of times. Anyway, all these shenanigans cost me four years, uh, four and a half years in Supermax. I did Supermax in Florida, Santa Rosa. Um, it was almost 23-7 uh, um, lockdown. You know, you never really get out. Cellmates once in a while, usually solitary. And then uh, and then when I got transferred to Virginia, they were supposed to be over with the solitary. Two years enough, right? Non nonviolent offender. No, Virginia thought it was a good idea to stick me in solitary in a Supermax for another two years. So I did a lot of time in, in, in solitary confinement. It was during that period I really got into the Bible. I really got into writing my stories and trying to think, how can I turn this around to help people? I'm sick of this. <laughs> I'm sick of this crap. And some guys commit suicide under those circumstances. You know, they hurt themselves. They'll throw feces at the guards. I was never like that. I was always trying to help guys get signed up for GED. I was a tutor. I was taking college courses. I was fighting for uh, college courses for everybody, including myself. I took some courses with Washington and Lee University. They came into one of my presidents. That's an Ivy League school. I got college credits from them. Um, and I started writing my books, screenplays, and just, you know, just really, what am I going to do when I get out? And I heard about guys who come out with these backgrounds. You can't hide your background anymore. Right. So, so I was like, you know what? Let me just do what some of these guys I've heard about are doing and start like a true crime channel, maybe with an inspirational twist where I'm talking about guys who turn their life around. And I try not to make it strictly too crime. You know, if, if a guy's just bragging about his past, but there's no redemption story, no, you know, I'm doing better now. Or, but if he's still talking that way, like he's wanting to do things, I try not to have them on my show because a lot of guys want to be on my shows. But I, I, if you, I want to see how you cleaned it up. Are you talking to kids? Are you writing a book? Are you thinking of writing a book? I'll help you write a book. Right. See, I try and do it the other way. If they're too preachy and too too over <laughs> it and too, then I try. I'm like, listen, I don't want to hear all that. What'd you do? What happened? <laughs> Well, here's the, here's the here's the dilemma I find, is that I there's okay, and I'm not going to say scriptures, but there's joy and sin for a season, right? Okay, we all heard that expression. So of course, what we're doing is really exciting at the time. But look at the consequences. My life was screwed up. Yours was screwed up. Oh yeah, family was missing. You heard it. Like, what are you thinking? You're a smart guy. You've heard it all, right? <laughs> so, oh, I listen. I always love the idiots who go, you know, well, do you know? Do you regret it? Like, are you a course i regret or or the guys that no because it made me the person that i am today I, I, i'm in my 50s like you're starting your life over in your 50s with nothing the person i am today sucks right yeah i don't i don't i don't say it like that i'm like i, I definitely regret the things i've done the problem i ran into early on starting my youtube channel for your audience please hit subscribe <laughs> right. it's williamsdale true crime i'm trying to build my numbers up like everybody else but uh 
one of the problems I ran across early on is like I did like two lives during the A&E show when it was my reality show was airing uh, constantly. I was on Shawshank Redemption when I have a commercial, you'd see my picture. But I did a live. I, I correspond with a lot of fans. I have millions of fans. And I'm like always in touch with people, try to be nice. Um, you probably know how it is. I'm new to this. I'm getting like catfish from all over the world, you know, hey, handsome, you know, they, they try to sell you Bitcoin or my phone broke and send me money. You know? <laughs> right. So I'm starting a channel soon where it's going to be like, I just keep working the hell out of them. I let them run their whole scam down and then I just get to put, put a show about it because I torture these people now. I, I have I have something for all of them. But anyway, I just turned the tables on them. I had fans, legitimate good fans, like turn on me in the beginning a little, a little bit. Because they'd only watch a portion of it when I'm telling my story, my background, and they would tune out. Oh, I heard this guy turned his life around, but now he's he's bragging about you know hitting the virus house. He's bragging about these heists or fencing, and I didn't want to come across as like I, I want to. I always want to interject that I'm not bragging about my past. I'm telling it to you to show you how far I've come. To turn right. Around. That's the reason I put it out there. But some people don't listen long enough to get to that part. No, people are jerks. You know, I. Listen, for every, you know, for every 95 people, there's always one or two guys that's just going to be a jerk. Even if you said all the right things, then he would say, you're only saying that because, you know, it's like, okay, well, you're just a hater. So I, I don't focus on those guys. Listen, the network, a and &E Network has a, a moderation team and a legal team. They always told me, if you pick up trolls or anybody threatening you over the show or any of your involvement in our show, we handle that. Don't deal with any of it on your own. Just let us know. Ignore it. But if it gets to a certain level, let us know. So it's hard. I'm from the streets in New York. It's hard for me to ignore what somebody's talking crap. You know, right. I have guidance and I have the help I need to do it properly. So my girl's in two episodes. She's freaking gorgeous. She has a smile of Julia Roberts. She looks like a freaking Kardashian. My girl's drop dead gorgeous. She's in two episodes and more things coming forward, which I can't discuss. But somebody says something about her, and that guy was persistent, and I dealt with him in Messenger, what, what I thought was private. So and then he baits me up, and I said, listen, you freaking coward. You're hiding in your mother's basement. You know who I am. You know what I was. I've changed my life. I said, if you don't like it, you know where to find me. You know exactly where we're filming and how to find me. I don't hide from my fans. And I said, you're the, you're, you're the drunk, you know, 35 years old, hiding in your mother's basement. So... This guy reported me like everywhere, <laughs> Facebook, A and E. <laughs> he called me out, and I said, I, I, "I got back to him. I said, you're such a freaking coward. You bait me up. I told you about yourself. I didn't threaten you, and you went like a little, you know, like a little bitch running around reporting me." Right. <laughs> but that—that's what they want to do. Like that—that's their goal. So you, you know, you can't play into it. That's the whole. That's the purpose. They're that's trying to get you fucked up. That's what my girl says. She says they wanted to see that they got under a, a reality star skin and that they had some interaction with you so they could have that. When they're talking, drinking yeah, it's just interaction. It's like a little kid behaving badly. So mommy, even if mommy's going to come over and slap them or yell at them or scream at them just to get some reaction, just to get some attention. Yeah. It, 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 I've heard it said that for some people, negative attention is better than no, t no attention at all. Yeah. That's. And I get those guys, you know, and sometimes I, sometimes when I, I say stuff back to them, just a little bit of interaction. And, you know, a lot of times I'll do the whole, I'm sorry you feel that way, bro. You know, probably should check out another channel and, you know, um, you know, 
yeah, I, I disagree with you, but, and a lot of times they'll come back and they'll say, they'll be like, nah, bro, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it yet. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's like, they just want that interaction. I have one of these main guys on these mob shows, like a big, huge guy who's kind of blowing up, but a lot of people say he's a phony too. I'm not even going to say this guy's name, but another mutual friend got me on his show and he wanted, then he told me he wants $200 to come on the show. I said, listen, I'm new at this. I'm still struggling. Don't think because I have a reality so wealthy, you know, because they pay much for I can't say what they pay, but it's not a lot for somebody just coming out of prison initially anyway. I said, so I bring you numbers because I'm well-known. You're bringing me some more exposure, so it's kind of quid pro quo. He didn't see it like that. And so the guy who referred said, no, 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 even with his fee, I told him I'd take care of it. That's how much I want to see you succeed, Bill. This guy called me every name in the book, but he's out there as – Christian talking about his testimony, the big cross, this, that. And I'm like, you're the kind of Christian why people run away from Christianity. Yeah. I says, so here you are. I got a big string of you threatening me through messenger. You're going to beat my ass. I said, where I come from, where I grew up, you'd be known as a freaking roid rage clown. That's all you are as a clown to me. To me, you're a fake Christian. That's between you and God. But you're the reason that people don't want to, you know, really look to God for things because they see hypocritical, hypocritical examples, myself included. I'm not perfect. But I said, so here's a guy that everybody, thank God, somehow fell in love with me, that everybody's giving me props. When I thought in prison, I'd have no life. I'd have no woman. I, like, I'm getting older. I lost my freaking hair. I lost my, you know, my figure. You know, <laughs> I gained all this weight. So I didn't want to do the online dating. I thought I lost everything. I was miserable. You know, you know how it is. You really, I don't know who stood by you, if you had your girl, your wife, your family. In my case, my term, they're back on me to steal my inheritance. They ended up taking 800 grand from me. They told my mentally ill mother I was dead and then had her sign over trust agreements, took everything. I've been in litigation with them still. And wow. so I was coming out pretty destitute when I was walking out. And you got people like, you know, this guy's like knocking me when everybody's trying to support me and saying, Bill, I'd love to have you on a show. I don't know how much of my show you actually watched on A&E, but it's streaming on A&E, uh, inmate roommate, and you know, you'll see how horrible these people treated me. I just, yeah, I, they locked out. I saw like the one they locked you out of the house where they're, they're giving you a hard time about the rules. And you're like, well, how, how, like, are you serious? Like what, and, you know, they were, and you know, even though they were trying to be this, this good Christian family, they came off very odd, bro. Yep. They were so odd people. They, they, uh, they told their pastor and their church that they were starting a, mission house to help people one at a time who were getting released from treatment or prison to help them for a few months get on their feet at no charge. But then you'll see on the show they're presenting you like a $2,700 bill for rent and utilities and food and this and that. I was already screwed up physically from being locked down for COVID. And so they're vegans and expected me to be vegan. I had no car. They would speed by places. I had my girl send me a few bucks, you know, just to get me on my feet. But I was trying to really budget that at the beginning. I couldn't go to the church of my choice. They wanted to take me to their church. Um, they wouldn't stop even at a fast food restaurant. I'm saying, listen, I don't want to eat vegetables all day long. I'm sure it's healthy. God bless you. And yes, maybe I'll do that a few days a week. But I want a freaking steak. I like lasagna. I'm a great guy. Yeah, I just got out of prison. Like, I need to bring me by McDonald's, you know, bring me by something. They would speed by if I said, please pull over that Taco Bell, this restaurant, whatever it was. There's an episode, if it came out that I couldn't eat meat, and you'll see the one episode where I'm hiding. I made a cold-cut sandwich. I'm hiding in my bedroom. There's, it's a beautiful house where I was staying. They have a gorgeous, like, mini mansion. 
from the 1800s, fully renovated. And I got a gorgeous bedroom, beautiful bathroom. I'm in there hiding on a toilet like I'm in prison, eating eating a freaking cold cut sandwich, wrapping it up. I got that and a nice tea on the floor vent with the, with the, with the air conditioners coming in. And they're filming me. And I said, this is so ridiculous. I got to eat this freaking meat in the bathroom because I can't have it in the house. I'm not supposed to have it in the house. I'm not supposed to put any meat in the refrigerator. You know, so there's an episode. It's called The Meat Police. And it was all about denial of meat. So it exploded on the internet. Hashtag meat police. Hashtag free bill. You know, fans would tell us, would say, hey, Bill, go back to the prison and knock on the door. Tell the warden he won't back in. <laughs> I had a blast, man. But, you know, there's, there's probably, uh, I can't, a lot of fans are asking me about a season two, and I can't officially go there. But you want a season two, contact A&E. Love my fans. Anyway, so I'm blessed that I really feel that I need to use the uh, the platform I'm being given to build what I've been trying to do. I told the network, I said, I'll participate in one condition. Goes in my contract. I get to talk about what I'm doing post incarceration, which is building my channel and writing books. Right. Yeah, I know. They they always those contracts. They always want you to. Oh, you can't do any social media. You can't do any platforms. You can't. Is like, man, what are you nuts? Like you, like you, you can only be on television if it's our show. It's like stop. I'm not doing all that. Right. I I can't. I don't feel like I can do any of the shows at the moment, as far as like you know, full blown. You know. Right, but I mean, they'll try and stop you from doing podcasts. Yeah, I could do movies. I could do my own podcast. I got some movie offers right now. One, one of them, my friend, he's making a movie. He, he, they're putting out Mob King in Florida. That's about to release in a few days. Uh, actually, today they're at the Hard Rock in Hollywood doing the uh, the premiere. And then on the 26th, I think this weekend is when it actually airs. I was given a full copy of Mob King to review. I gave it five stars. Great freaking movie. Shout out to Cyril DiPaggio uh, and Anthony Caliendo. He, he backed the movie and he starred it. So this guy, he says, Anthony Caliendo was a prisoner, not a prisoner. He was a mobster in, in Chicago when he was young. His family was in the mob, turned his life around. Now he's the big cheese, Caliendo Foods. He's a, a very successful guy. Always wanted to be an actor. He's got the Italian looks. And so he's back the movie and got a starring role in it. And Ciro did a lot of time in prison in Florida. He owned nightclubs in, in Miami, turned his life around. Now he's making movie after movie. So these guys are releasing Mob King. You guys, you'll see a lot about Mob King coming up in the next few days. But uh, anyway, that's I'm, I'm on the same path. I told I T Zero. I said, you know, I'm, I'm on your heels. You've been out a few more years ahead of me, but I've already got a screenplay. I've got an offer for a drama series. I have a reality show. You know, <laughs> I'm kind of proud of those accomplishments, but I, I do recognize the need to use them to help people. I, I try to give people a voice. J.C. Capone. Uh, great guy in the Bronx. He's got uh, Parkinson's. What an inspirational guy. And if you check out his channels, he's got a big cigar in his mouth and he cares about his kids and he's trying to raise awareness for Parkinson's. And he and he pokes fun at his own illness, you know, but he goes, I, I shake like this all day and, you know, because I'm from the Bronx and I'm Italian, they think I'm doing one of these. Like, hey! <laughs> so he makes fun of himself, you know. And So I have great guests on, you know. Another guy, son was murdered. He's a professor in Orlando. And DeSantis won't do a thing to see the murder or prosecute. Instead, the guys in West Palm run around with a gun still to this very day because DeSantis won't move on the case. Um, so we're trying to bring it's uh, Sandy Modell, the, the the murder of Ryan Modell in in uh, uh, it was Fort Myers, Lee County, whatever. And it was a horrible thing. He knocked on the wrong door. This kid was with the college to develop um, better pacemakers and become an engineer with those because his mother died of a heart attack. So he's a really good kid. 
And he was moving back home to his father's house after graduating, after landing a job. And one last thing that he had in, in Lee County, he was living in a beautiful condo complex, had a few drinks with his friend by the pool. One o'clock in the morning, he's only in his swim trunks. The buildings are all identical in this place. He's trying to get in the wrong door because he's at the wrong building, not his place. The guy opens, he's got a gun in his hand with his wife. He says, why are you trying to get in my house at one in the morning? He says, no, I live here. You know, we were just out by the pool. <clears throat> and they said, look, we know who you are. You live down there. You know, get away from my door. The people were irritated, right? So bottom line, he slammed the door on him. It cut his foot because he tried to step into place and cut his toe. So he walked away. He walked towards this building. He was hosing his toe off. They called 911, the people. Said, hey, guy just tried to get in here. And the wife said, well, we know who he is. He's just drunk. You know, be careful when you come here. And they told the guy, stay in the house. Don't pursue him. Stay locked in your house. We're sending the police to look into this to make sure. Right. Okay. End of story. Instead, the guy waits five minutes, goes out, hunts him down at 2 o'clock in the morning, almost 2 o'clock in the morning, finds him sitting on the grass, hosing his toe off, puts the laser sight on his head from a Glock 10 millimeter, he stands up. He says, man, get that out of my thing. And as soon as he stood up, the guy executed him, killed him. Guess what they called it in Lee County? Stand right. your ground. How's that stand your ground? You don't have stand your ground when you pursue somebody, when the incidents are already over, when the police told us stay safely locked in your house, we're coming. You can't pursue somebody and then claim stand your ground. It has to happen while your life's in danger in your house if you, if you kill somebody. you know. So we're trying to uh, help raise awareness to this case, uh, Sandy Modell. The, the murder of uh, Ryan Modell and trying to get uh, the Sands to step in and do something about it. He told Professor Modell that he was going to, but he won't do it. So we're putting out stuff now that how, how soft on crime DeSantis is. <laughs> he's soft on violent crime. I know he doesn't like that. We put a video out. He's put a book out. He gives the book away free about the case. Anyway, how I met Samantha, Marco might interest you. Her attorney is also Donald Trump's attorney, Peter Tickton. He's in Delray Beach, the lawyer you want between you and your problems. Anyway, Peter is a good friend of mine. He helped me when I was in prison. We tried to get the commutation and emergency release for COVID, all this nonsense we tried when we're trying to get out. And uh, Peter's just a really good guy. He went to military academy with Trump. I call him up all the time. He says, you know, I'm representing uh, Samantha Markle, you know who Megan is. And I said, yeah, but I don't follow all that loyal gossip and stuff, you know, but I, I noticed some animosity. He says, I'm the one that's filed the lawsuit. And we're going to be naming Netflix and, and uh, Oprah as well because they knew what they were putting on their shows was false. And these people, Megan and Harry, were executive producers on the Netflix. And Oprah tried to weasel out of it and say, well, I pulled the show down where the stuff came out that was not true. That show you can't find it. It's been scrubbed. We have copies of it. Right. But she told uh, – Megan was saying, well, my sister this, my sister that. So then Oprah said, well, basically, so her book is a book of lies, something along those lines. It tanked Samantha's book sales, right? The publisher stole all the royalties that they were sitting on and then never gave them back to her. And they said that she was on a watch list in the UK, couldn't get into the UK or to Buckingham Palace, that she was unstable. Samantha was unstable. Samantha lost her job over there. I can't get one to this day because that's all you Google is that Samantha's on a watch list. She had to hire a lawyer to go with MI5 or MI6, whatever it was, get proof from them that she is on no such watch list. So because of all these lies that Megan and Harry have been putting out, they're getting sued. And Oprah right. said, well, I'm just a journalist. I was letting my guests talk, and you know, I was just contributing. 
she's not off the hook because as executive producer, she has liability for what she lets go out. Right. She Oprah's it's 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 like this close. She's named in the in the admitted complaint went out a few weeks ago. And that amended complaint got like hundreds of millions of views on the internet. And Samantha was nice enough to give me the first copy of it and put it out. So I beat everybody, the whole planet, with the new copy of that lawsuit. I put it out everywhere. So I beat Buzz, BuzzFeed and this one and that one, all the ones that are like paying off the clerk of court to try to get copies of things. Um, I beat them all. I said, let me have a copy of it. I'll be first. And I'm trying to you know keep blowing up. So it got me a lot, a lot of attention. And you're doing a YouTube podcast with her or... We we do what you're doing right now. We um, I've interviewed her for about six hours about her life and her situation with her sister and the royal family. Um, well, she loves the royal family. She just really despises what Meghan and Harry have done to her. Um, but so she's she's got like master's degrees in criminal justice and psychology. So what we decided to do is while the lawsuit's pending, is put most of the focus on her coming on as a co-host, and we talk about big cases in in the, in the media right now or cases of interest to her or to me. And we discuss cases where sometimes we have, uh, I don't have the call-in capability yet or whatever it's called, super chats, uh, working on that. Right. Like people can comment in and we throw it up on the screen we answer the questions. If we're yeah. Um, so we've been doing a couple of those. You know, she, she does shows all the time, though. She does other shows. Then I've started a PR firm and uh, I, I said, look, you <laughs> would you like to be my first client in the PR firm? And she said, sure. She said, I used to help prisoners getting out. You've been nothing but good to me and your Peter's friend. And she's my first official PR client. So that's, that's pretty cool. So it's like if people want her on shows, they can go through. She finds her own too. You know, it's not like yeah. exclu- it's not like exclusive, but I could certainly get her on shows. If you want to have her, I could talk to her for you. I don't know what she'd talk about, though. You'd like want to hear like if she killed somebody. I don't think she ever has. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll think about that. I'm the world of figure that uh think about that let me tell you about this fancy escape you might get a kick out of this story oh yeah that's right like okay so you were locked up and what how how the escape out years ago so i worked my way this is before i had i was not a violent offender i had already in another bid knew how to because i was a law clerk had to work my custody down and start working in the community so the escape's nothing fancy but everything that happened during it is crazy I used to pretty much escape routinely. I would go meet a girl, do it, and then come back in time for count, depending if yeah. I was police or out on the road. Everybody does that. But in Florida, if you do that, it's still escape. It still carries 15 years, possible 30. In this particular instance, we actually were working on the side of the road. I told the, uh, I, I got ready to do the, to, to walk off that morning. I had some family problems. My brother-in-law died. Nobody told me I was pissed off because he and I were close. And I was just, I had three years left on a 10 year sentence. The stupidest thing I ever did in my life. This thing. Three years on a 10 year sentence. Fuck. Yeah, I know how the dogs work. So I took like gold bond foot powder. I took my sheets and all my dirty clothes. I threw them in the trash in the, in the, in the restroom and all my stuff, my locker, I put foot powder all over it. I took all my addresses out the day before, tore them up, flushed them, and I left with a sock tied inside my pants, which <laughs> with like triple antibiotic ointment, a cigarette lighter, a bunch of phone numbers that I needed. Because when you go to work outside, I was working outside the gate 20 miles from the prison. They would take us every morning at like 6 in the morning. But they could pat you down if they wanted to. And if they would have seen that stuff on me, they would have had a, you know, I would have got locked up for attempted escape. But anyway, 
I, I ran late to the gate, so they're paging me, you know, report to the gate, report to the gate. I go, it's the worst officer in the planet running the gate. I'm like, oh, crap, I'll get a shook down for sure going up. He just says, get out of here. I'll have time to shake you down. You're holding everybody up. I jumped right. in the truck, and we left. And you know how inmates are. They don't want to be in your business. Hey, man, you're holding us up. We try to sit around and wait for your dumb ass. Let me shut that freak up, you know? So we drove. The law, my understanding of the law, if you escape from private property, it's absconding. It's not technically escape, but if if I'm on a, uh, if, but they don't take you on private property. You're working on the side of the road. You're working at the beach. You're working at the police department, painting the courthouse, whatever they're doing. So in this instance, we were working down to South Florida by a bridge washout, and we were putting dirt under the bridge. And when the trucks were dumping the, the stuff, I told the boss, the, the officer supervising us, he had to call checks into the prison every 15 minutes that he saw all of us. He laid eyes on us. So it was every two hours, but then other guys walked off all over the state. And so now I get ready to go. It's every 15 minutes. I'm like, good. I only have a 15-minute window before the dogs show up and the U.S. Marshals and all this crap. <clears throat> so I told him, I got to go to the bathroom. Blah, blah, blah. We pull into a, a Dunkin' Donuts. He's going to get donuts. The Florida uniforms have the white stripe down the blue the blue uniform. They have the white stripe down the leg. Yeah. He says, I said, I, he said, I can't let you use the Dunkin' Donuts bathroom, man. Just wait for me a second. He said, you got the stripe on your leg. When we get to the bridge, there's toilet paper in the truck. Go under the bridge and go over there. I'm not taking you inside the store with that, with that uniform on. I said, all right, I understand. So when he left, I opened the door and stepped out. I was going to dip right there because I'm on private property. Who stops me? The freaking inmates I'm with. What are you doing, man? Get in, get in the truck. Get in the truck. Boss man said this and that. I said, you ever hear a story staying out of somebody else's business? I slammed the door on them, you know, because they were just running their mouths. And I said, well, if I walk 10 feet from this truck, they're going to jump out and catch me for the lousy $100 that they'll get from the, the investigator for stopping an escape, you know? That's what they get. They give them like 100 right. more to stop an escape. And I said, this is, this is crazy. I couldn't do it. We got to the work site. We're working under the bridge. They're dumping another load of dirt down there, surrounded by million, multi-million dollar homes. It's right near the intercoastal. And so then when they dropped the dirt, we had to shovel it under the bridge and tamp it in to secure the bridge. But on breaks, I think it was going over, it might have been the Indian River. I forget the name of the, the, the body of water. But anyway, so as we're taking the break, I said, can I go down? He says, yeah, go. I go down. The guys are hanging out under the bridge, away from the, the truck dumping. And I said, hey, I'm going to go over there and use red. Oh, man, let's go. We don't get to know that. I said, yeah, okay. You, know, you want to be in my business every other time, you know? Right. I go over there. I strip out of my clothes. I had wore, I wore out a pair of shorts also, brand new shorts, brand new white T-shirt. I took all the state clothes off. I put them under my arm. And I went up the other side of the bridge. And at the railing, my supervisor's looking down at the work squad and the work way down below. And I'm four lanes of traffic on the other side looking at him looking down. I, I'm on his back now. Right. And this is my only chance he could have seen me if he turned around. So I, I hit some fences. I ended up in some backyards. I go up the block. There's a, uh, I tried to get a ride. Nobody would stop. I was going to say, hey, you know, I was, I was jogging or whatever. And, you know, I got hurt. Can you please take me to a hospital? Nobody would stop. Nice area. You know, I'm kind of sweaty. So there was a meter reader riding a bicycle. And he went between houses. And I jumped on this guy's bike. And I start pedaling like 100 miles an hour. And the next thing I hear, hey, hey, get back here. That's my bike. <laughs> I'm like, crap, man. This thing's over before it begins, right? I beat him. I go a mile up the road, half a mile, uh, condominium complex. I want to get off the road before now. 
and looking for an escape beat. Oh yeah, by now they're they're yeah. I'm thinking they are. They weren't, and I'll tell you how I know that. So he's already calling nine one one. Guy just stole my bike and the meter. <laughs> I get to this complex, and I had taken a screwdriver from the truck before I left, so I could I could columnize a car, start a car. Certain certain GM models have a tilt wheel. You can crack the column and you can start them pretty easy. So I was looking for a certain model. I couldn't find one. And I was like, crap, man, I need to get out of here before they seal the area and bring the dogs to track me right here. I wasn't far from where I walked off. And um, he was supposed to be doing checks every 15 minutes, and he was doing them. But he was not laying eyes on us. My discovery later showed that he didn't notice me missing for close to an hour. Or like his fourth check after I was gone. The reason I know that is the guy calls in at this time is about his bike, let's say 9 a.m. He doesn't report me missing until like 10. I don't see him anymore. But I would already be gone all this time. Right. So he wasn't really doing checks. He was going through the motions, which gave me an hour head start. The police told the guy, according to my discovery, we don't send police out for stolen bikes. Come to the police department and make a report. And that, <laughs> nice. Yeah. So they never came out. They never connected it to the guy who just escaped because my supervisor wasn't calling it in. In this complex, I, I got to get out of here. I can't steal a car. You know, I got the state blues rolled up under my arm. I see these two women talking in front of one of the units, and I made up a story. I said, hey, can you tell me, uh, I'm sorry to bother you. Is this the only entrance into this complex? I'm waiting for a taxi, you know, and we just moved in. We're renovating a unit all the way in the back. Oh, yeah, this is it, you know. And I said, well, my, my wife went into premature labor with our twins while she was at the orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> I made up this big story, and they're like, oh, boy. You know, and I said, and in the excitement, you know, me trying to get to the hospital, I locked myself out of the house and the car. The neighbor was leaving, let me call a taxi before he left, but the taxi never showed up. And I was wondering, you know, if there's another entrance to this complex, maybe I missed him. And, um, you know, and she's like, no, we didn't see anybody, but I, I just put a load of laundry in and I have some time. I could drive you up to the hospital real quick. I know where it is. So the lady volunteered and I was right. I just escaped from prison. So she said, she'll help me. I took the clothes. Um, I said, would you give me a bag for these? We're renovating, and they, they have all like sheetrock dust on them and stuff. She said, sure. So she brought me out a bag. I tied the state clothes into a knot in the bag, put them at my feet. We jump in our car. We leave. We're driving around um, US-1, South Florida, like Port St. Lucie area, all that, that section. So as we're driving around, we go to one hospital. I want to lose her, and I'll just figure out steal a car there, right, at the hospital somewhere. There's big parking lots everywhere. I'll grab a car and leave. I get to the hospital. She drops me off, and I and she, she wants to wait for me. And I said, no, 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 you know, I'm here. Well, go ask information if she's here, and, and let me know what's going on. You know, I feel safer that way. You know, you're okay, and you don't need to go somewhere else. I, she, I couldn't. I, first, Well, first she took me to the orthopedic place. I went through the motions, came out, said, oh, they took her to such and such hospital. Then we got to the hospital. I came back out, and I said, they said they moved her to another hospital. That was like 11 more miles away. It's too far. I'm going to wait for a taxi here. She goes, no, you're already in the car with me. Let's go. I want, I want you to catch up with your wife. This poor lady was so nice. She was like an elder or something in her church. And I'm like, oh, my God, God's going to hit me with both the lightning over here. So this poor lady's driving me around. By this time, yeah, over an hour goes by, the streets are flooded with police looking for me. Helicopters going up and down US-1 out of side streets. I don't have a vehicle. They don't know that she's in a white vehicle, the most common color car in South Florida. It's this white. Right. So I'm like really not on the script. There's cops in traffic, cops everywhere. 
And finally, after like two or three hospitals, she says, there seems to be a lot of cops around here. She said, let me just pull one of them to the side and see if they could run your wife's name through the system and find out where they took her. Oh, that's not. Yeah, I said, I, I said tell you what, you see that patio furniture store right there? <laughs> My uncle's the manager over there. If you just drop me off there, he'll let me use the phone and probably use his car and run around for an hour and figure this out. Okay, she said, but, uh, and, and then I noticed it was closed as we she pulled into there, but there was a Burger King. So I said, I have diabetes. I've got to get something in my stomach or hypoglycemia. I forgot what I told her. I said, I'm going to just go grab something to eat real quick and then walk through the lot to there. So she pulls me up. She says, you just said you locked your wallet and everything and your, everything. You locked stuff out of the house and your keys in the car and your wallet. How are you going to buy anything? And she's taking out a $20 bill. Wow. I just escaped from prison. This lady wants to buy my lunch. <laughs> I cannot tell you. I felt like this big. I was, you know, Alliance is a really wonderful human being. And, uh, I, you know, I know you didn't see me not coming up to faith, but, you know, I, I was a Christian even then, you know, both the light and you know, all this stuff. So she, uh, I just, I kind of almost lost it and told her the truth, almost told her the truth. But, you know, I know better. And I said, uh, I said, hey, I appreciate it. And she gave me her number and her card and everything. And I said, I'll get back to you. She goes, oh, don't worry about it. But just I'd like to see you guys at church one time and meet your wife and the babies and all that stuff. <laughs> and as I'm getting out, she says, can I pray for you and your wife before you get out of the car? And I said, sure. We hold hands. And I said, before we pray, I got to tell you the truth. I can't go into prayer with something that's hanging over my head. She goes, what is it? I said, look, I, I, I had, do have an emergency, and I did need a ride in an emergency situation, but it's not for this, what I told you. And, I, and I, you're so nice, and I'm really, really sorry I lied to you. But uh, I'll get the money back to you, and thank you for the ride. I didn't want to accept it to begin with. She said, well, whatever it is, you seem like a really nice guy. I hope it turns out all okay. I go into Burger King, say we say a prayer. I go into Burger King. It's getting crowded now, right? So there's cameras everywhere. I got state clothes under my arm still. I look at the camera and I went like that, like my signature move for all my, my, my celebrity shots. And I go like that. And I went like that to the camera. So I knew it was going to be on the news any damn way because that's the last place I'm seen. And so I went to the men's room real quick, washed out, took all that stuff, put it in the bottom of the can. I threw a bunch of water on it so nobody can go digging in for my clothes. you know. And then I dried up and and I'm like, Okay, I'm, I am hungry, and I haven't had a burger in 18 years. <laughs> but I said, I'm going to get the hell out of here because she's going to go home and send them right back here, right? So uh, what happens? I decide to leave. I'm looking for a car that I could possibly steal, but I'm at the door trying to hold it. Nobody trying to go out, nobody trying to come in. Well, a guy comes in. I hold the door for him, and he goes, man, he says, are you okay? You look lost. <laughs> I made up another immediate story. I says, oh, you see that Mercedes right there? I said, I got myself locked out of the car. I've been waiting for the damn locksmith for 45 minutes. <laughs> I have an appointment with my realtor, you know, coming up here in a few, in a few minutes, and uh, I'm going to miss that. We're looking to move to Florida, looking for houses. And he goes, I'll tell you what, I'm about to have lunch. If you need to make the appointment with the realtor, I'll drive you down there. Where is it? And I and I always look for realtors. So I knew right where there was one, like another half mile away. And I said, well, it's that office, such and such. And he goes, I know where it is. I have a condo here. And I waited for him to get his lunch. And we jumped in his vehicle. As we're driving, he says, where are you staying? And I think it was Best Western. I said, I'm staying at the Best Western, you know. And 
my wife's going to be flying down soon and we're looking for a house, you know, three to $4 million range on the water. And he's like, well, uh, he said, I'm an associate pastor at my church. And I'm like, oh man, here we go. (laughs) So the guy was so nice. And he says, "Uh, look, you don't have to stay there at the hotel. I have a condo and two extra bedrooms in it. You can stay with me for a couple of days until you straighten things out. And I'll drive you around until you get back in your car and everything. And I said, look, uh, because I'm really suspicious of everybody. And I said, look, don't take offense at this, but uh, I'm not buying. I'm not curious. There's nothing weird like that going on. Is there? <laughs> he, said, he said, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up going to his house with him after his lunch. Meanwhile, let's go back to her. She gets to her place, right? I used a tracking dog to go from place I escaped. Already the marshals, the sheriffs, the police, corrections officials, they're calling in all their off-duty employees. They lock down the work camp and the main prisons, complete lockdown because I'm missing. And they track to there. And as they're talking to her neighbors and showing my wanted poster all around everywhere a few hours after. Well, she pulls in, do-do-do-do-do. As she's pulled, the one lady she was with was questioned, oh, my God, he just drove off with my friend. He said his wife was in the hospital. <laughs> so they kind of, at the end, knew what car they were looking for. So before she even got the, the final turn in, they kind of pulled her out at gunpoint. You know, imagine these guys with probably shotguns and MP5s pointing at her. <laughs> she's like, what's going on? What's going on? I heard she almost had a nervous breakdown. God bless her. I'm so sorry. But uh, so they pull her out. You know, where is he? I didn't know. I didn't know. He lied to me to get a ride. Oh, my God. And, you know, she said, he's at the Burger King. So that became their next point. But when I was getting in this guy's pickup truck, there was about five chicks in, like, bikinis in, like, an open Jeep, like, with the top down, like, just, like, hanging out. <laughs> and I was like, hey, ladies, you know, it's a little flirtatious. I haven't seen a woman that close in 18 freaking years. So, I, of course, I said hello to them. So when they questioned everybody at the Burger King, they said, yeah, he was here. He, he was out the door for a minute. He stepped out. They had the image. He got into a, a blue convertible Jeep, Jeep with a bunch of women. <laughs> oh, nice. But I did I got into this guy's pickup that was next to it. But the women had everybody's attention in the restaurant. They're looking at all these hot chicks. Right. Yeah, so that kind of gave me another few minutes of head start, right? They were looking for the wrong vehicle. And they started pulling over like all the blue Jeeps in three counties. <laughs> so I go to his house. He's got a hat there. I says, hey, I've been getting burnt since I'm in South Florida. Can I wear that hat? It happens to be a Yankee hat. I like the Yankees. Sure, I wear that. I put it on. He's going out. There's a neighbor coming home. He's in a walk-up condo, nice place. And I see the neighbor. I don't want her to see my face because I know it's going to be all over the news, South Florida. Right. So <laughs> I act like I have trouble getting the seatbelt off. And he comes back to the car. He says, right. I said, no, your seatbelt's stuck. But really, I was watching, waiting for her to go to her unit and leave and not, not lay eyes on me. So she left. I said, oh, I got it. <laughs> and I follow him up. We go in. Not nobody's laid eyes on me except for the Burger King. Get to his place. I actually just chilled out there. We talked. He had to go to a barbecue that night. He gave me a key. I had the hat. And I, 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 and I said, hey, is you know, I'd like to watch some news and just check out the local community, see what's going on around here and I'll chill out with you to come when you come back. He said, well, it's a barbecue at my church and they don't really know you. So it's a little awkward bringing somebody, but you know, you're welcome to chill out here till I get home. Okay. While I'm there, he calls, tries to call two or three times in this conversation on his, 
voice. He's at a regular old school uh, answering machine. He's saying, hey, Bill, this is James. He said, are you still there? When he said, are you still there? He had no reason to, to phrase it like that. I said, right. oh, shit, he knows something. He knows something. You saw a news pad. And I'm watching the lead up to the news, the lead up to the news, breaking at five, Larry breaking at six, you know, escape of a, you know, master burglar <laughs> for South Florida's on loose and my picture everywhere on the promos. And I'm like, oh, crap. So I'm waiting for the news and he keeps calling. I don't pick up the phone because I don't want to deal with it. Right? I'm just trying to plot my next move. Finally, I took one of the calls and I say, James, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I was just in the bathroom or whatever. And he says, uh, he says, hey, the lady that owns the house wants to talk to you. She gets on. Hey, Bill, I heard you're from Chicago. How long have you been around? You know, what I didn't know is it, the, the, she had seen some of the promos and heard about the escape because all the schools got locked down. Right. Yeah. So the whole community knew, and I was just hiding out. I didn't know everything yet until the news aired. So she knew, and she knew it was a guy named Bill who was last seen at the Burger King. Not good. So what, is, what has he told him at the barbecue? He picked up a guy named Bill at the at the Burger King. So she's like giving me the third degree. Oh, you okay? You know. So how did you guys meet? I said, oh, this, that, and the other thing. I just made up my series of stories. Oh, I said, I'm looking forward to meeting everybody at church Sunday. You know, I'll certainly go. We're buying a house. And she said on the discovery later, she said, something just wasn't right. It's the exact same name, first name, exact same time of day, exact same Burger King. This has to be the escapee. And James just isn't aware of who we invited into his house. Right. She went to her next door neighbor who was a, a sergeant with the sheriff's office and ran it by. And he said, it's definitely him. <laughs> like she went overnight. Like she said, I couldn't even sleep. I was so concerned that this was an escapee. So she does this in the morning. And next thing you know, he had come home that night with a lot of suspicion. Um, the news was coming on. He wanted to watch it with me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but- I said, oh, eh, you know, it's okay, but I really want to watch this show on History Channel. You know, I'm trying to commandeer his TV so he doesn't watch it. And then I said, hey, do me a favor. I've been dying for a cup of coffee. You have a, you know, fancy coffee pot in there. It's a million. I got, I, I, I deliberately took it apart, put the pieces all over the counter. And I said, I don't know how to make it. I'm just dying for a cup. Can you come in here and do it for me? And I waited for like 30 seconds before five o'clock news. <laughs> sure, Bill. They went in there to do it. I muted my, my episode. And it was like me on every station. And he missed it because he was effing around making my cup of coffee. But when I stepped out, he evidently grabbed his key back because I had it sitting in the hat on the couch. Right. Yeah. So I came back. The key's gone. I'm like, oh, he knows. So I said, hey, hey, James. I said, I have set my key down in the, in the Yankee cap here. Did you, did you take it back? If you want me to leave, I'll go right now. You know, if there's a, oh, God, I don't know where it is. So I, my question is, if he was that concerned why didn't he call the police um he didn't want to believe it that he made that kind of mistake and then was that you know call it gullible whatever i just he just didn't want to believe it and i was i'm over the top nice to people you know especially when i'm trying to do something like that um so he did you then he did why did you stay why when he was gone why didn't you pack up a bunch of his clothes that fit you and grab anything valuable and head off. I was a law clerk and I did the legal math three years out of prison or while you're on escape from prison in Florida, a burglary within that period is a mandatory 30 years in prison. 
if you have, if you're, yeah, if you're within three years of release, it's like, it's a, a penis fender sentencing act or some bullshit. Ooh. You know, I know if I did steal from him, I'd fall under that. So I, was, I can't take anything from here, but at that time I wasn't beyond maybe doing something, you know, somewhere else where nobody knew who I was. But in this case, they would figure out who I was. So I, I, there was like a gigantic bottle of like coins and this and that. I was like, I'm not doing it. I don't care if there's a few grand in there. <clears throat> I just was doing the legal math. It just wasn't worth it. Um, that being said, he did the dope fiend move and proceeded to help me search for the key that he probably had in his pocket. So he's in the kitchen pulling the refrigerator out. I said, what are you doing, man? The thing's not under the refrigerator. I'm going to leave. You're obviously uncomfortable having second thoughts. No, no, it's fine. You know, I'm going to bed, you know. So, he, you know, I said, well, you know, the locksmith uh, called me. They'll meet me in the morning. He said, you want to change the clothes? I got a whole closet of new clothes in the guest bedroom. Take whatever you want. I did. I made a duffel bag with a few clothes, brand new pair of tennis shoes. And I said, I, hey, I appreciate it, you know, whatever. And I just, he, he, I was I was found out, but he was too paranoid to say anything about it, I guess. While he was out, he got a call. And that call, he had a, he was uh, t- doing chef work somewhere, and he had a landscaping business as well. And he had a call to change the location of one of his jobs, and I never gave him the message. No, 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 let me back up. I gave him the message, but nobody knew where he was going that morning but me. So when he left in the morning, he says, hey, you might want to know what's going on in the news, right? I said, maybe just a real estate or business section. Is there a newspaper? And he said, yeah, right in the entrance of the complex is machines. Just walk up there and get one. And, you know, he says, nothing else you think you'd want to read this morning? I said, nah, I don't know much about, you know, the, the area yet. I go acting like I have no interest in the news at this point. So he leaves to where I sent him to. Nobody knew he was there. I go downstairs. I had a cap on, glasses, different clothes on. And I got not far from his building. It's a winding entrance to the place to where these machines are on the sidewalk. And I look up, but as high as I can see, there's a helicopter already. I mean, it was just, and it was just hovering over his complex. And I said, holy crap, I'm screwed. So now I need to hurry up and get back to this place, grab that bag, and leave. Do I have time? Right when I'm thinking about it, there was a caravan of police cars, undercover cars, marshals, whatever other agencies they're sending, about 20 vehicles flooding into the complex. So I broke into like like a power walk, right? So I'm on the windy road with the the speed bumps, right, doing my power walk. Mm -hmm. They passed me again within a foot of me. And I just waved to them like a concerned, you know, neighbor, you know, they, they, I just like kept my power walk. And as I look in their cars, they have clipboards and like my pictures on their board. And I'm like, holy crap, that's my DOC picture with blue background and everything. They surround the wrong building. The helicopter drops down. They start deploying. They bring out the, the dogs and everything. And I'm like, okay, they're around the wrong building. Good for me. And I snuck back around and I went up the stairs and I let myself in to grab that bag. And as soon as I did, I heard there was a, a like a manager on a golf court came up to them and she was pointing at the correct building. She got wind of what was going on. Like, no, not this one. It's that building. And right. so they immediately were jumping back in their vehicles and rushing over. Now I'm trapped. They surrounded me. I, my dumb ass went back into this, into the correct building. Right. So, Oh my God, I'm dead. And the law is they can shoot and kill an escape prisoner. They, if they want to, they, they can get away with shooting you if you're a state sentence or probably federal sentence prisoner and allowed to kill you. So 
I was like, man, I'm about to get myself murdered in this house by the cops, and they'll, they'll say I did something. So, but I was also doing the math as a law clerk. I said, wait a minute, they don't have him with them. They uh they don't have probably they don't have keys, no permission to come in. The manager can't give it. They don't have what's called exigent circumstances, which means a high speed pursuit where a violent fellow went into a building and they can go in solely for that purpose without a warrant. And they don't right. have time to go get a warrant. So the three grounds they can come in on me, they had none of them. They're up the stairs. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Mr. Such and Such, we need to speak to you about your new house guest. <laughs> They're screaming, U.S. Marshals, all this crap. I was in the hallway behind a planter with some flowers, just standing up against the wall, hoping they weren't like looking through the people reverse and trying not to put any shadows out or movement in the building. I was in the hallway, just, just frozen up. And they stayed out there a good 20 minutes, knocking, knocking, trying to figure out what they were going to do. I eventually hear them going downstairs. And I'm like, okay, now they're down there hiding in the parking lot, surrounding the building. They're going to be around the edge. When they see me come down, they're going to pull out on me and I'm dead. Or they're going to arrest me, whatever. I just said, you know what? I can't stay here forever. He's eventually going to come home and let them in. <clears throat> All of a sudden, the vehicles are backing out and they're leaving. They put the dogs in. They, 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 they took some of their gear off and they're all leaving the complex. I'm like, come on. You guys, you're faking a move. I know you're still down here hiding, I'm thinking. Right. I literally waited a few more minutes. I said, F it. I just opened the door. I had one hand in front of my face, one in front of my heart. And I said, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. I'm coming out. Please don't shoot. Don't shoot. I figured at least if they shot me, they'd be in trouble because the powder burns and the bullet holes would be on, on the right. outstretched hands. Don't shoot. And I'm like this. I get out. There's no one there. I drop my hands. I go down one landing. Every time I got to the bottom of, of the two or three landings, I would put my hands back up. You know, please don't shoot. Don't shoot. I give up. I give up. Nobody there. Now you get to the bottom. You know, you got to come past that edge of the building and all the cars are parked right there. And I'm figuring that's where they're going to get me. Right. So I go out to the, uh, that's the scariest part. So I'm like this. And I'm, I'm like, don't shoot. Don't shoot. And there's nobody there. There's nobody behind the bushes, the cars, the edge of the building. I'm like, no freaking way did these people leave me here like this. I'm like, here. They, they pretty good chance I'm here. Man, I took off. I started hitting, ran across US-1. I went to another complex. <clears throat> Mexican guy, a roofer, he's taking stuff off his truck. I said, hey, do me a favor. I locked myself out of my car in my apartment over there. Please, I'm going to keep it straight with you, man. I'm on parole. Today's my last day to report. If I don't get to my PO, I'm violated. It's my last day. Could you please drive me to the parole office? He goes, oh, my man, I know how it is. My brother's on parole. <laughs> Give me a minute. And he took a few more minutes doing what he was doing. He literally drove me like two more miles outside of that search area to where I knew where the parole office was. I said, hey, I still got another hour to get in there. I said, just drop me off at the Denny's right in front of it. <laughs> and he left me at the Denny's. I'm not going to walk into a parole office, Mom. They're all looking for me. Right. But anyways, but I happened to know where it was because you know, I was actually supervised out of that office before. And so it went like that. I Anyway, I went on a run. I was gone. I went to Palm Beach. I looked up uh, Maxwell and, and, and that to try to get some help and get some cash. I ended up trapped there with her for several hours uh, for actually probably just over a day. And then I w ended up in Daytona Beach. And in Daytona Beach, there was a in interesting series of events I was spotted in Daytona Beach, and I've never been to Daytona. If you know, if you get to the boardwalk over there, there's like 
there's there's a boardwalk and there's vehicles on the sand. I think police vehicles at that time. I'll tell you right, there's a pier and a bunch of amusement parks and everything. And I never saw the slingshot thing and all that. I've been in prison forever. I'm like, wow, that's some pretty cool rides, you know? But there's cops everywhere on the sand, on the boardwalk behind me. I'm like the state's most wanted person at the time. I'm like, oh my God, why do they come up to the, to the boardwalk in the corner of all places? You know, so I'm like wanting to get back off there. But somebody spotted me and, and they were checking an area for me. It's a really long story. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But I ended up in an empty lot, crawled up against the fence. It was overgrown with like, um, you know, they got the bougainvillea plants in Florida. They scratch you, you get pretty bad infections. Yeah. They got the thorns on them. So it was all bougainvillea and palm fronds. I crawled in by the fence and I'm laying there. They got helicopters up. They sealed the area off. Over the fence, the next door neighbor is being confronted by the police. Put that shotgun away. He goes, well, if that mother effort comes over my fence, I'm going to shoot his ass. You know, well, we don't want him to have any violence. Please put the gun away. Go in your house. I have a right. You know, he's like arguing. He's hoping I'd cr- jump his fence. I'm hiding, right? I'm hiding in this, like, gully along this rusty fence. And right. My, I had shorts on. My ladies are getting eaten up by red ants and bougainvillea. I took polyphrons, I put them over my body in case they do a thermal scan with helicopters or something. So I'm laying. Nightfall comes. I'm laying there 10 hours, nightfall. I'm thinking I'm going to get up. Okay, it starts raining. But I have palm trees all over me, and I'm covered with polyphrons. I'm not getting wet at all. You know how it rains in Florida. Yeah. Downpour. There's nothing coming on me. It's just a little drip here and there. All of a sudden, <laughs> I forgot I was living in a gully. <laughs> I was lay- laying in a gully, you know, like a little... Thing. I got an animal trail probably like a freaking torrent of a stream of water came right under me <laughs> all of a sudden I got like water covered like between my legs up over my chest you know it's flowing into this gully I'm laying in so even though the rain wasn't getting me it happened to be low laying, laying in low spot so uh, I stayed there for like a whole nother day I snuck out of there went to a laundry room stole some clean dry clothes like a sweatsuit or something out of a dryer <laughs> Put that on, put the hood on, and walked out of that neighborhood. And uh, that's how I got away from that. So I had two close calls. One at the, the condo, the other one in Daytona. <clears throat> Fast forward a few days later, I, I can't get into a lot of things. You know, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. But uh, let's just say about the mall, right? Now, the Daytona. You asked the what? The mall? Oh, it's called the Volusia Mall. It's on International okay. Speedway Boulevard. You ever been to the track around there anywhere? No. Get off 95, International Speedway is the track, and across the street from it, the Volusia Mall, and behind the track is the International Airport. Okay. So I'm at the mall. I'm looking to make some money, right? <clears throat> I see this jewelry kiosk in the middle of the mall. I don't have lock picks. I've been out of – I just escaped from prison. I'm out probably two weeks, right? Surviving, right? So I'm going to hit the jewelry kiosk because I noticed the day before they would throw the jewelry up in there from down below. They took the black things off and they put the jewelry and they would go to like a Starbucks or Barney's or whatever the hell the coffee place was, the two girls that worked there. So I knew I had a window of about 15 minutes from the time they restocked their shelves to quickly open each display and walk out with about two, 300 grand worth of jewelry. Right. So the one day I wasn't really prepared that I heard them talking again about meeting at the coffee place as I was walking by, you know, listening. 
Um, I went, there was a Sears right there. And I said, well, I'm just going to get a little pry bar. And I know the case is if you open two at a time, the alarm goes off. But if you open one at a time, take everything and close it, you can get in each one without setting the alarm off. So I kind of know how they were wired up. I didn't have a pick, but it's just bullshit showcase locks. I want to get a pro bar and a long black bag. So I ha I have the bag. The lady sends me. I said, hey, do you have a small cast bar, a little pry bar? She sends me to the wrong aisle. I'm like, I'm in a major hurry. So I asked another salesperson. I said, look, lady sent me to the wrong aisle. Where's your small six or eight inch pry bars? Uh, oh, those are in aisle four. Okay, I get it. I go to the register. There's people at the register. I'm like, crap. I should have thrown, it was like $14. I should have thrown a $20 bill on the counter and walked out with it. Instead, I pretended that, you know, I was done shopping and walked through an aisle and I put it in my pocket and I walked out with it. So now I'm beelining right directly to that kiosk because you just reach over, you push a button, you let yourself in. I drop behind the counter and I start prying the cases open. Right. As I'm just about to put my hand on it and walk in, security guy in plain clothes comes rushing out, grabs my shoulder. I'm, I'm like three steps from going inside that jewelry kiosk. He says, sir, can you step back in the Sears with me? Oh, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, how can I help you? He goes, you put a tool in your pocket you didn't pay for. You walk past the, past the point of purchase. I said, I'm in a hurry. I'm illegally parked. I bought a house. We're renovating it. You know, my spiel. And I said, I'll give you the I'll give you the twenty bucks right now. He says, you can still pay for it and have it, but you're going to be given a trespass warning not to come back in the store anymore. We're not even going to involve the cops. I'm like, okay. So now there's two of them. They take me in. We're in their office. I'm not handcuffed. They said we're just going to issue a warning. They fill out all the paperwork. You know, I can't come back to the, to that Sears for a year, whatever the warnings for. They said now we need an ID to match what you told us. And I says, well, I'm staying across the street at the Hampton Inn. Everything's in the room. Oh, no, we can't give you a trespass warning, warning if you don't have an ID on you. <laughs> we have to involve the police if you don't have the ID. So bottom line, I, try, I couldn't talk my way out of it. The police comes. He shows up. He said, I can't believe they called me for this crap. You know, he believed my story. He says, I'm just going to run your name real quick. Everything checks out. I'm going to let you go anyway. They give you the trespass warning. So he runs the quick alias I gave him. It all checks out. He's about to release me. He had. He said, but I got to run up by my sergeant. Calls the sergeant. Sergeant says, no way. You don't have ID. You know, you're required to book him in under a John Doe and let the fingerprints tell us who he is. Huh. So he's apologizing that he even has to arrest me for this. He doesn't realize I'm being hunted there as it is. Cops me up, brings me to the jail. They booked me in the misdemeanor tank with the with the homeless guys and the you know the drunks you know, and so I'm in the booking area. They bring me out for the scan, and then you know the fingerprints with the red thing, lasers and all that crap. So every time they roll my print, I'm like pulling it. I'm not trying to give them a clean image, right? And the guy's like, "Are you nervous?" I said, "Yeah, I've never been arrested before. <laughs> you know, I just escaped from prison, you know." <laughs> so I said, "Never been arrested before." He goes, it's not going to let us proceed until you give, I get a clean roll on each finger. I'm like, oh, okay. So he does it. I go back to the cell, and I'm like, it's going to hit immediately, and I'm going to be taken to the hole somewhere, you know? Yeah. So this guy was talking about how he's about to be released, and he fell asleep, and he has release paperwork in his pocket. So I figured, I'll escape from the jail now, right? So I'm going to take this homeless guy's paperwork and try to walk out what they call his name, you know, and look at the paper. I get the paperwork. Nobody says a word about it. Next thing you know, they open the door. 
It's uh, a little little lady in civilian clothes from the Volusia County Sheriff, and a whole big like. First of all, they cleared out the whole entire booking area. They told everybody to lock down, even the trustees. The lady comes over. She's got the guys with the shields, like the, the SWAT, SWAT team for the jail or whatever, sheriff's office, yeah. standing with her. She says, I'm the APHIS technician for the Volusia Sheriff's Office. I have to personally redo your prints. It's been a problem. <laughs> they take me out. I'm surrounded by all these big guys with the electric shields and all their bullshit and the, the taser ready. You know, She redoes them. They put me back in the same cell. They stay there. Few minutes later, she's gone. They come back. They call me by my real name and tell me to step out. And I just ignore them. I I, I dropped the papers. <laughs> I just ignored them. They look at me and said, "You know who you are. Get up off that seat, or we're going to pull you out." They took me, stripped me out, put me in a red jumpsuit, right straight to the hole in the jail. And so I, I couldn't escape from the Volusia County Jail because it got disrupted by the uh, the old fingerprint machine. But uh, so that's what happened. And the rest is history. I did all this time, wrote some books, took some college courses, I have a TV show, and now I tell my stories to try to help people and tell them, don't follow in my footsteps. I even have on my, my true crime channel a section called The Misadventures of a Super Thief, five-minute clips when I tell a story about all the times I could have been caught or killed. Right. And don't follow in my footsteps, you know. But that's it. It's, that's kind of the long story of how I, you know, escaped and got caught. It was no fancy escape. But because of who I am, they made a big deal about it. No, I think it was pretty good. It would have been great if they if you'd walked out with that guy's paperwork and they let you go. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Then they realized they had you in the tank and go in there and go, where is he? Oh, he's gone. Um, if that one sergeant didn't say no, book him in under John Doe and let's see what happens. He yeah. said something like he could be a, a probation or parole violator or illegal, illegal alien from Canada in we just need to book him as a dog. He said it right over the radio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's <laughs> hilarious. What's the channel? What's the channel? My YouTube channel, William Steele, true crime. Please subscribe. I know you have a nice fan base and I'll send my yeah. family your way. Send them my way. So I'm going to put books trying to earn an honest living. William Steele author. Well, YouTube, William Steele book about Glenn Maxwell, Robert Durst. I have two more books coming out. Um, I can't tell you what's going on with Inmate to Roommate, but uh, stay tuned. It's looking good. Oh, I started a second TV show called Steal the Spotlight TV and Radio, and that's on a local Midwest cable channel, and I tell inspirational stories. If guys got out of prison, they have an inspirational story. They want to come on. I've had several people who got out or are doing good things, helping people, numerous celebrities. Donald Trump's lawyer has been on the show. Um so people doing good things, you're more than welcome to come on that. You know, it's an invitation for that and for my true crime stuff. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Colby will put your your links in the description box. No, I certainly appreciate it. Um, I'll make sure you have those. If you don't have them already, we'll get them to you today. Just sent you about 10 images today. I don't know how many you want to put up, but some of them are real interesting. One has a steel spotlight, a couple of them like, you know, I'm pointing upstairs, you know, thank you, God. And other ones are on location. Um, I think that some images we sent you maybe from inmate to roommate. The trailers, if you want to throw a trailer in here, I think you're allowed to use the trailers, aren't you? Um, I mean, I don't know. It depends on if they copywrote them or not. You know, if they put if they if they put them on YouTube, then they probably hit like the copyright so that nobody can use it. So I get with the copyright. But I what I can do is I can definitely put the link to it. 
Okay. Yeah. The, the one that people love the most, car one, you'll see when I go for that test drive. Right. People die, roll, die, they roll over and die laughing when they see it. They have to watch the show after seeing that. That's really, they're all funny. But that one there is like, I get the best reaction from it. The oh, network, I- in my case, when we alter clips, like I took a few clips, like my book, Sharna, the lady I was living with, said, first of all, she wanted to be with me and she was trying to break me up with Mary. And, uh, and so she uh, had said on the show, he sent me the book, and as soon as profanity, I threw it out. And then on my first book signing, an author's first book signing is a big deal, especially somebody with a background like mine who yeah. you're not supposed to amount to anything. God forbid you should do something positive with your life. So I was really proud of having a book signing. She came to it and told people not to buy the book. This is the lady I'm living with. Yeah. So this all played out on TV. So guess what? The fans flipped out all across this, the, the one site. I forget the name of it. Reddit and all these other sites that were having right. problems. And like, everybody, let's organize. I'll buy Bill's book. The hell with Shara. <laughs> well, guess what? She lied on national television because if you look at the Amazon review, she wrote under Aloha Nurse. Book is no good. Profanity. You know, I threw it out. It's verified purchase. I never mailed her that book. She was my friend when I was writing it. She knew it was coming out. And she right. supported me by buying it. But on the show, she says he sent me that book. I didn't know what happened. Finally, shit. Well, you can you can tell she's she's got they've got some problems across the board. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no ifs ands and buts. They have no sense of humor. They're they're super uptight. I appreciate it. I'm gonna put all your links uh, in the description box, and uh, everybody check out uh, check out Bill's channel. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor and hit the subscribe button uh, if you like the video. And hit the uh, bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Also, do me a favor, leave me a comment and share the video to as many people as you can. That really does help me. And I appreciate you guys watching. Thank you. See ya.